Ladies and gents, boys and girls, pronouns of your choosing, welcome back to the Firefighters Podcast. It is great to see you. It's great to have your ears with us once again. Hope you're well. Hope you've had a fantastic day. We have got a great episode for you. My guest today is Gary Chamberlain. Now we entitled this episode Not Easily Swayed and I did so because Gary has got some very strong and passionate opinions about the fire service. He's a martial artist and he survived 31 years in the UK fire service. But before we jump in there, let's hear from our Firefighters Podcast family. A big thanks once again to our partner Blue Light Card. Now at Blue Light Card, they work to recognise the hard work and commitment of those individuals carrying out some of the most important jobs in our community by offering members an amazing selection of online and in-store discounts at over 15,000, that's right, 15,000 commercial partners across the UK. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, that's right, we are heading into summer. And Blue Light Card has just launched a new campaign helping all of its members get ready for summer. It's got some epic discounts on fashion, must-haves, garden staples, holiday essentials, keep you looking and feeling your best for less. My partner is never one to miss a saving. So we've been kitting ourselves out and kitting the kids out and utilizing all of the discounts on Blue Light Card to do exactly that, getting those holiday essentials ready to get out of the UK as soon as we're able to. And we're even booked in to go down to some of the lovely little coastal villages around the UK. So we've got to make sure We've got those must-haves. And even if you're just kitting out the house, you're getting the chairs, you're getting the covers, you're getting the barbecues, you're decking out your garden ready for that summer. Blue Light Card has got so many amazing discounts to help you make sure you get exactly what you want and are still making that saving. So get over to bluelightcard.co.uk and find out how you can save on those summer months. Dressing sharp, looking good, looking classy, in comfort, and getting yourself ready for summer. A massive thank you to William Wood Watches, a long-term partner of the podcast. Now, I'm a massive fan of this brand. I've had my Valiant watch now for probably two years, and I get so many mentions on it. If you're somebody that's into their firefighting history, if you're somebody that likes something classy, something sharp, but also something functional, then you've got to head over to williamwoodwatches.com. If you're an emergency services geek, or you love your fire service memorabilia, the authenticity that's behind this brand is absolutely incredible. It's all based around the owner, Johnny, and his grandfather, who was in the fire service for 25 years years he won commendations for his bravery and passed away after which johnny started the brand and this is now the legacy of his grandfather one of the really memorable acts of william Wood was actually on the 29th of june 1966 when he and three fellow firefighters saved five small children aged between five and one from a severe house fire and you feel that a lot when you look at the watches for example the straps i mean that's always the one that really gets the mention when people see it and they go hey that's such a unique piece the red fire hose that i have on my straps are made from hose used by the london fire brigade that iconic red strap comes from hose that's been in the service for a minimum of 10 years. I'm talking stuff that's getting thrown down the street, your road traffic collisions, it's getting hauled up the side of buildings. You know, it's actually been in there in the thick of it. And you can see this on the markings as well. Mine's got some black markings around the edging of it, where it's obviously been impregnated with a chemical of some form at some point on an incident. You know, it's actually been out there on the front line. But I mean, they've also got it in the yellow, the green, the blue. So no matter what watch you belong to at your service somewhere across the world, you can make it personal to you. Now, the Valiant collection I've got is such a stunning piece. It's got the Super Luminova on all the dials so day or night you'll still be able to see what you're doing still glance at it on the middle of the night at a job and still get the time i was also surprised when i was swimming at night the other week that obviously works underwater as well 
Even down to the small things, you glance on the side of the watch, you've got the British brass firefighter's helmet. It's been sort of melted down and carved into the side of it. It's such craftsmanship, I absolutely love it. Bigger than all of that, it's just the story behind it. It's a perfect thing for a Christmas or a birthday gift for any firefighter or lover of the emergency services. It is the perfect gift. Now, I know I keep banging on about my Valiant, but they've also got the Bronze Edition, the Chivalrous, and earlier this year, they brought out the Triumph Collection. This one was an absolute game changer, a stunning, stunning timepiece. So head over and check them out. I think they're running a 10% discount at the moment, so get straight over there. WilliamWoodWatches.com, an incredible partner of the podcast. Also want to give a shout out to our media partners, the Emergency Services Times and the Emergency Services Show. We're also working in line with the Cheshire Fire Challenge and the British Firefighter Challenge. Competitions back on in the UK towards the end of 2021. All the details are in the notes for the show. And that's the names in the frames for today's episode, folks. So in today's conversation, you might hear some loose conversation. You might hear some words used that perhaps don't usually show up in certain episodes. I would ask you to listen to this with the sincerity of acknowledging Gary was in the fire service in a very different time. Banter was very strong. The culture was very strong. And tough times created tough firefighters. But if you can have a good sense of humor about you, which we often speak about in this episode, and see the forest through the trees, there's some fantastic lessons to be learned from some of the stories, some of the opinions, some of the thought processes and some of the experience that Gary shares with us on today's episode. A big thanks and respect to all of the people that are joining us on this journey. So again, before we jump in there with Gary, do not listen on if you are easily offended. This one is not for the faint of heart. And through this conversation, I try and position myself as the bridge between the past and the present, trying to navigate through and take away some of the fantastic values and morals and the lessons learned from 31 years in the UK fire service that Gary's going to share with us today. There really is some wonderful messages here. I'm so thankful for Gary spending time with us and I'm so thankful for him feeling able to be open about some of the things he shared today. So thanks for dropping by. Thanks for lending us your ears for another great episode. Let's buckle up for safety and I will see you on the other side. There he is. Oh, you're right. Yes, brother. How are you? Not too bad. Can you hear me all right? I can hear you perfectly, my good man. I'm not very good on this technology business. <laughs> I love yeah. your honesty. How are you, mate? You okay? Yeah, fantastic. Not bad. Good. Not bad for an old fella. <laughs> not bad for an old fella. Age is, uh, it's all about perspective, I suppose, isn't it? You know, because you'll be old in, in comparison to one person, but young in comparison. To, how old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 65. 65? Crikey. 60. I only look, six, look 64, though. So 65 years young. So you've still got another 15, 20 years to make a difference, brother. <laughs> I was just saying I want to get to 81 because then I've had more years out of the pension fund that I paid into it. You know so what? Been, that, that'll, be, that'll be an interesting thing. I'd actually love to talk to you about yeah. it when, when we sort of get started. As you say, you can edit stuff out. Right? Mm-hmm. I do tend to swear, especially when I'm talking about the fire brigade. I don't That's know okay. why I'm the head just, you know, comes back <laughs> into fire brigade speak. Some of my ideas are probably old-fashioned. You know, it might be, might be a bit controversial in today's, you know, touchy-feely climate, you know, I'm not one of these safe space type people. I've got no filters really. I tend to just blurt stuff out as I, as I think it. <laughs> Some of the fire, I still, I, I'm not one of these for going on station. I don't, you know, I've never been one of these saddos. It's got nothing to do. So, yeah. But occasionally I'll, I'll bump into people that I, I used to work with and we always sort of like have five minutes, have a chat. The, <laughs> the general feeling is we had the good times, you know, like I joined in the, in the 70s. 
Uh, I served obviously till 2006, and the general consensus is that the 70s, the 80s were brilliant. Glorious. 90s, things started to go a bit health and safety mad. <laughs> uh, in the 2000s, things started to get PC mad. You couldn't say this, you couldn't say that, you couldn't tell a joke. They tried to sack a couple of people for telling jokes, for God's sake, you know. So the, the character of the job changed. So my character is still firmly in the way I was taught, the way I was groomed in the seventies. Mm. And so, there's bits of that I want us okay. to I want us to go into as well. In our sort of conversations leading up to to our chat today, we ended up sort of arriving on the title of uh, not easily swayed, and it came from when you finished in the fire service. For people that are unaware, you did 31 years in the UK fire service, and your um, not retirement and or sort of leaving letter that you received from your chief had some really really interesting choice terms and descriptions some some backhanded yeah. some backhanded compliments and also some nods to a previous mindset of how the fire service came to be this wonderful thing that we place on a pedestal in the community you i mean on top of that as well you know a published author and you're also a, a martial artist and, and we've had a few martial artists on the podcast and i wanted to bring you on because with the greatest of respects to people that aren't i'm not i'm not a martial artist but being a martial artist comes with an air of credibility that you have a, a deal a great deal of self-awareness and discipline so <clears throat> kind of brings all those things into into play 31 years ago you started the fire service how did that so how did that come about uh well it was 46 years ago to 46, be honest. Sorry, been, yeah. <laughs> yeah i've been retired for 15 years at the time i mean i'd left home under a bit of a cloud you know i, I didn't get a woman father for various reasons that are pretty relevant to go into but basically at 18, uh, 17 i had to leave home and i just took any job i could and then we had a time in the UK, which was called the winter, you know, it was just before what's called the winter of discontent, but there was a lot of trouble with unions and all the rest of it. And basically we went on to a three-day week. As a coincidence, at the time, the fire service was recruiting because they were changing from a 48-hour week to a 56-hour uh, week to a 48-hour week. Yeah. So they're taking more blokes on. Now, because the factory where I worked was down to three days, I couldn't afford to live on what I was earning. No. My instructor at the time, a bloke called Pete Kisby, was in the fire service. Is that Steve's dad? Said, well, yeah, Steve's dad, yeah. He was my karate instructor at the Oh at the my time. God. Wait till I speak to Steve. Love it. Oh, no, yeah, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. please carry on. So I was only 18. I mean, I was still a kid. I was 10 and a half stone. I wasn't very mature. Bit of a twat. <laughs> uh, I wasn't very hopeful. I went, I went for the interview, you know, I sort of like dressed up and all the rest of it. And it always makes me laugh when I talk to people trying to get in the job now. I mean, the, the hurdles they have to jump now. So I turned up at Central Station and there was a, a great office there called Stretch Warden. The old, old stretchers would call it. John yeah. Warden. And... He sort of like greeted us as we came in. Me and a bloke called Bob Bateman, he was, he was on the same school. And all I had to do in my physical test was to get Bob Bateman on my shoulders, carry him the length of the drill yard, swap over, and then he carried me back. Okay, you'll do. That was a physical um, testing. That was the physical test. So none okay. of this bleak test or you know, none, none of this climbing ladders and leaning back. None of that at all. Okay. That was your basic physical test. Then we were took into workshops and we had to sort of like disassemble and assemble some basic kit. Mm. But the kit then was more primitive. It was designed to be idiot proof. So yeah. I was I was well qualified. Um <laughs> So this still did the dexterity test and stuff like that. So there was a little bit of so there was some. Good there was a little bit. I think I think I had to strip down a Leicester branch and put it back together or something like that. I don't even know if you use they'll use Leicester branches, but no, we haven't still got them in. But yeah, there was only about six or seven components to it, wasn't there? Yeah, they weren't they weren't particularly complicated. I was in engineering at the time, so it was was holiday really. But the key thing was, I mean, I, I still remember this, and you know, forgive me if I, you know, it's still so like 
brings a lot to my throat, really. I went to see who, a man who, in my opinion, was probably the best officer I served under, a bloke called Jack Tansley, and his, his legend's well known. JJ, everybody used to call him. Very hard man, but an extremely good officer. I went to see him, turned up, 18 years old, you know, wet beyond the ears, really, you know. And after the usual sort of generic sort of questions, it wasn't like today where you've got like a certain pro forma that you go for an interview. There was just several questions he asked, you know, are you bothered by blood? No, I used to help out on a farm slaughtering pigs. Blood doesn't bother me at all. Mm. Bothered by heights. And I, I had to sort of like, <laughs> sort of like be a bit cagey there. I said, well, I used to work on a farm stacking haystacks and stuff like that. Didn't really bother me that much. But then, to be honest, if I fell off a haystack, or I fell onto hay. Yeah. A bit different to climbing up a TL and falling onto concrete. I, I always know. have this when people talk about vertigo, because I'm like, I'm definitely not afraid of heights. But I do get yeah. very aware of how high I am when you're, yeah. you know, when you're standing at the edge of a factory building four stories up and you're just having a glance over for spread with a thermal imaging camera, whatever you like. And you just get very yeah. when you feel that wind and you're like, oh, hang on a minute. I'm very yeah. high yeah. up here. I'm very aware of how high I am. But people can, yeah, yeah, people, yeah. a lot of people struggle with heights. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute if you like. I mean, just to finish up on the interview. Jack Tansley, some people didn't like him. I mean, he had high standards, and if they if they weren't prepared to make an effort reach those standards, they'd probably find him a bit strict or whatever. But in the interview, Jack Tansley turned around to me and said, well, what do your parents think about you joining the fire brigade? And I wasn't giving him a sob story. I would just say, well, unfortunately, I don't live at home anymore. And he looked, looked a bit sort of quizzical at it. And I said, well, no, I had to move out. I had a bit of a row with father. I had to move out. But straight away, he said, well, you've got a new family now. Wow. And I thought that was that was great, you know. I mean, he obviously saw something. I, I'm not saying he's super perceptive or whatever, but he saw saw a need there. I would imagine. Yeah. Here's this young lad, quite enthusiastic, quite keen, quite fit, wants to do the job. And like I say, you know, you've got a new family now. And, and I joined December the 16th. Thank you, pardon. Yeah, December the 16th, 1974. Very different then, very different fire brigade. The kit was more primitive, but the, the atmosphere on station, totally different to what you see now. Yeah, I think what we lacked in kit, we made up for in culture and character. And there was a lot, you know, the idea of the old sweat on the watch and the social accountability, if you will, sort of holding each other to a higher yeah. standard really, really made it what it was. Yeah, when, when I joined, when I, I joined on the section at Central Station after I've been through the training school. Uh, we still got people there who'd served in the Second World War. Jack called Jack Nutt. I mean, he got a, it made me laugh if he lined up for parade, you know, like an officer had come in with his long service medal proudly displayed in. <laughs> Jack Nutt had got the real thing, you know, he's got like campaign medals. You know, he, he, yeah. he'd been through the war, you know. He'd been there and done it. Uh, yeah, he'd been there and done it, you know, got blood on the t shirt. So I was very lucky because I had some real good mentors. Mm. in the job I mean mentoring now people talk about mentors as if it's some kind of pop psychology or whatever what I mean it's blokes blokes who told me how to behave what mm. was expected yeah. pushed you when you needed pushing but at the same time let you let off a bit of steam as well I was talking the other day about the atmosphere on station I mean like, I could always remember if you went covering or anything turned up at an unfamiliar station we used to jump in a brigade van an old escort van go over to Oakham or, or wherever for a cover duty yeah the first thing you heard when you walked through the door of a fire station, and I've been all over the world now, I've been to Russia, America, Japan, it's the same, all over the world. First thing you do, you hear, when you walk through the door, you hear a bloke somewhere having a laugh. Yeah, baby. You know, and that's how it used to be, you know, and there used to be a great sub-officer at Oakham called Dave Tibbetts, and he said, uh, you know, he didn't say it directly to me, I mean, I've just heard it secondhand. We're here for two things. Number one, help the public. Number two, have a fucking good time while we're doing it. <laughs> oh, yes, you know? brother. 
<laughs> and that was that was brilliant. That was just the atmosphere of the station. Um, when I was posted to D section, it was a different system then because the sections sort of overlapped. Instead of having watches, you had sections. So okay. one day it'd be like A and B, the next day it'd be B and C, next day C and D. Okay. So you work with more people, if you like. There was a core number that you work with on your section. First day on, you work with the previous section. The second day on, you work with... So there was a little bit more sort of overlap of sections. I had two really good station officers. A, a bloke called Stretch Warden, who I mentioned earlier. He was brilliant. He was the fireman's fireman. Mm. It was the absolute epitome of the fire service. There was nothing. There was no machine you could go to. No piece of kit you could take off that he couldn't tell you everything about it. You know, he was oh. he was 100% fire service. Mm. Ended up working with his son, Alan Ward, also called Stretch. You know, these things run, used to run in families. Uh, I think these days, if you've got a family member in the fire service, it's almost a disadvantage when you go to interview because they're so worried about nepotism and all the rest of it. Yeah. But, but in, I sometimes think you get, you get more for your money because there's a certain aspect of, we've said about character building and stuff like that, that's come yeah. in that nature-nurture. They'll have, they're, yeah. The hope is they'll already have certain values and certain morals embedded within them. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, they probably understand the job. They've been, living, you know, they've been on yeah. station since they were kids. But you know, Stretch Warden was great, and the other station officer I had was a bloke called Brett Evans. Now, he was a former Royal Marine, and he was a, he was another tough guy. He was, he was <laughs> quite quite. Those small, boys don't quite, mess about, do they? No, that's right. It was it was quite diminutive. His stature was only about five eight or something like that. He wasn't physically imposing, but he had a great way of running the watch. You know, as an officer, he was absolutely spot on. As an 18-year-old kid, I thought some of his attitudes were a little bit rigid, a bit inflexible. You know, obviously, kid, you know, you're still a kid. You just want to mess around a bit. But professionalism, training, you know, the way things had to be done, he, he got it dead right. Yeah. In, my, in my opinion, looking back, I was very, very lucky to be on his watch because the training was really, really good. I mean, we were well trained. I could talk about training as long as you like. It's a lifetime interest for me. But I think it's fascinating and the different concepts for it. I, I wanted to sort of pick up on what you've said there because I hear a lot of aspects of discipline in that. And discipline has been given a lot of negative connotations in the past sort of yeah. 10 years or something like that. And I'm, I'm massive on personal discipline, you know, whether it's ice baths, whether it's my training, whether it's the, the way I behave around my family, my children, my, my addictions overcome stuff like that and i try and say to new recruits now that because when they say oh yeah but so and so and you know i mean you'd flip your lid if you heard this sort of stuff so and so on the watch doesn't have to do it and they've been in 20 years or whatever and i always try and uh, try and articulate to them look there's freedom in discipline which sounds like an oxymoron but when you've demonstrated the discipline when you understand the strategy the tactics can be flexible yeah how we go about it every job is different yeah every incident is different yeah the kit might not be there it might work or whatever so then you can be flexible but for now we need to be rigid okay it has to be rigid for now and i hear that when you speak about you know your old your old officers and your old sub officers it seems at the time you know we feel a little bit like we're being um you know oppressed when we're like oh it's so rigid it's so rigid but there's freedom in the discipline do you feel any of that when you look back now I certainly do. I mean, we used to drill. I mean, this, the system we used was drill, test, adjust. So we drill. Well, you know, I mean, like the drill was very different to now. I mean, like I said earlier, I don't hang around fire stations. I mean, I've passed that phase of my life. But <laughs> where, where I live, I quite often drive past a fire station. Of course, you glance across. And I mean, no disrespect at all. I mean, but times change. You see blokes shuffling around on the drill yard looking a bit bored. You see them carrying ladders at walking pace. You see them all standing around while somebody explains the finer points of some intricate piece of kit. 
we didn't have that. We didn't have that at all. The kit was fairly basic, and we ran. We yeah. ran when we did drill. Mm. When you're on the drill yard, you were moving. You, you, we drilled at what we call fire ground pace. Yeah. And there's a very good concept in martial arts, which is you have to train how you're going to fight. You know, you can't train at you can't train at fifty percent and expect to fight at hundred percent. It just doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you can probably train at eighty percent, so you're not getting injured, you're not yes, getting no. hurt, but you've got to be somewhere near the level of intensity. No, no. I, I totally know. agree with you. It's then a, it's a smaller margin to shift when the moment comes, isn't yeah. it? You know, like you say, we're not trying to encourage people to injure themselves, but it doesn't That's need right. to be that much of a step change when you step into the real environment. It needs to be almost like you've been drilling at that pace. That's how the pace you've been doing it at. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we used to, I don't know if they still do this in the fire service, obviously I've not been on station for a while, but we do the basic drills. We, every drill session would start off with probably Q&As or locker drill. So you line up in fire kit, and Bryn Evans was 0830 fire kit drill. It never varied. It didn't matter what the weather was. It didn't matter if it was pissing down outside, snow, ice on the drill yard, because he just said, well, we, you know, we get fires when there's snow and ice. Yeah. You know, we still get incidents. We're going to go to the motorway. Guys. Your skin's waterproof. Get out there. You'll be fine. That's right. You know, we're going to go on the motorway. You know, there's been a multiple because there's been ice on the, on the road. You know, we've still got to do the job. So we need to train in mm. that environment. No, not like today. Oh, God, it's raining. Let's get everybody indoors and do a, do a tabletop exercise or something. So we used to drill a lot. Now, we go to an incident, and I have to say, things went really slick because we were busy. I mean, like we, at the time, we had 5,000 calls a year. Now, obviously, not on duty for all of those, but... Yeah. Central station at the time had 5,000 calls a year. So yeah. if you divide that by four and say that's that's what each watch gets, we were going to a lot of house fires. Oh, yeah. We had an ET on station. We were going to a lot of RTCs, a lot of special services. We, we, we were busy. But we'd go to a house fire for argument's sake. We'd come back. Somebody would get a brew on. Somebody make cobs if it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And we'd have a, a fairly sort of like, not rigid, but we'd have a fairly involved debrief. You know, right, what did you do? Well, I shipped the hydrant. Okay, did you find it all right? Well, yeah, you know, I had to look for it. Okay, great. What did you do? I wore BA. How did you find it? Well, it was all right, but the hose reel got stuck on the stairs. We were quite honest and open about what happened. You only find that in quite open teams as well. You only find that in teams where, you know, being honest like that, otherwise people can get defensive. It's better if you can just own up to things yourself. There There was no bullshit at all because people would... Mm. You know, yeah. would jump on it. If you try to pull the wall over people's eyes, they, you know, honesty was important because that's how you improve. Mm. So we'd have these debriefs. Now, let's say for argument's sake, I mean, I noticed this the other day. I'm going off at a bit of a tangent now. I was driving along and I saw uh, two pumps pull up and I saw smoke coming out the back of the house. And I was, I'm not one of these idiots who think I can help out or something like that. I mean, I just think, you old twat. But. I noticed there was plenty of room for the appliances to turn, pull up. There's yeah. plenty of room. There was, there was no space restrictions on the appliances at all. The lead appliance had pulled up about 30 yards past the front door of this particular house. Now, I don't know if that's a procedure. Now. I don't okay. know. Maybe some windows are blown out and they've decided that they have to pull up yep. far away for safety reasons, don't they? But we used to train, certainly when we got high-pressure hose reels, if you were driving the first pump and you were going to provide the BA and all the rest of it, if it was possible, if you had the space, you would pull up and line up your hose reel locker with a sort of entrance to the, the, front door, the yeah. house you know, with the door. So basically, the, the BA bloke's got off, probably half-rigged already or rigged already, if you knew it, the person's reported. They grab the hose reel, check for water, you've done your breathing check, boom, you're in. And there's no fucking about with 
hose getting entangled in cars. This incident I drove past. They were trying to get the hose reel off, and there was this little girl, bless her, I mean, she was trying to pull the hose reel off, and she was struggling like hell, because by this time, the branch man, as we used to call it, the B18, they've tried to drag the hose reel in. It's got wedged tight under the uh, under the wheel of a car. Uh, it, was a, it was a right okay. clusterfuck, honestly. <laughs> and I, I just thought, you know, okay, bless them. They're, try, they're, you know, they're doing the best and all the rest of it. But Brent Evans would have leapt on that. We would have been turning out into the yard he would have got two old cars parked up. He would have turned us out into the yard, right, hose reel off, and we would have lined up every, you know. Yeah. And this is what I mean, drill, test, adjust. If it didn't go well in a job, the training then was adjusted so that you got it absolutely slick. We used to have lots and lots of terraced house fires. You know, there, there was a lot of rough terraced areas. Coal fires, still 1974. People burning candles. You still get candles burning now for religious reasons. But at the time, you know, hard up people used to have candles. Yeah. We used to have a lot of house fires. And we got it to the point, Whitewatch uh, Central, we got it to the point where we could turn up, deal with it, slick, professional. And it's discouraging away in 2020, well, I think probably last year, 2020, when you drive past a modern crew, modern appliances, better kit than we had. You know, we didn't have the flash hoods, we didn't have the proper firefighting because we didn't have a lot of the kit that they've got now. And yet, our professionalism and way mm. was more yeah. slick. Mm. And that's no dis- disrespect to the crews. As I mentioned earlier, one of my interests is training, you know, physical training, martial arts training, and, and even fire service training to a point. Mm. You know, you've got to get it right because there will be instances, there will be times. I mean, these days, obviously, the core loading is not quite as bad, but if you do... 30 years, if you do a full career, there will be times where things are absolutely on a knife edge. Oh, yeah. You've literally got that, those two bats cocking up, people die. Mm. Get it right, people can be safe. And I'm not trying to be over dramatic about it, but there will be instances like that where training really pays off. Mm. So all the repetition, it's like fighting. I mean, coming back to martial arts, I won a British title and, you know, sort of my first opponent, I knocked him out in 10 seconds. And people had come down all the way from Leicester to, to London to watch. And they were sort of like, well, you know, that wasn't very entertaining. Well, I'm sorry, you know, like, I don't want to be entertaining. I just want to win as quickly as possible. You know, yeah. like, there was a great boxer a few years ago, probably way beyond, you know, I don't know how old you are, but what's called Lloyd Hunnigan. And right. he, he won a fight very quickly. And the commentator, a chap called Reg Guthrie, said to him, well, you're disappointed that it didn't last longer rounds. And he just said, are you crazy? You know, you don't get paid for overtime. Yeah. You know, you just, <laughs> you just want to win. And that's how firefighters should be. You don't want any cock-ups. There yeah. will be time. You know, it, I don't want to be overdramatic. It's not every time you turn out. But there will be times when you are absolutely on the, on the fucking edge. Yeah. And those particular times, all that training, all those times when you turned out, when it was raining, did your drills and all the rest of it. We used to drill, like I say, we used to start off with Q&As. Mm. Where's the nearest tank? I don't think you use tanks now because of safety reasons, but where's the nearest tank? Where's the nearest double tank? So, you know, topography had to be spot on. The piss taking would take the flesh off your bones. If you've got a question wrong, they just rip you to shreds, you know, but everybody had their turn. Everybody had their yeah. turn. Then you do locker drill. So like there'd be two pumps, two young lads would say, right, sledgehammer, pump. And you've got to go straight to the locker where the sledgehammer is hiding conveniently at the back. Retrieve it and get back there first, you know. Like so, we knew where the kit was on the appliance. Yeah. You know, there were none of these pull-out trays then. So yeah. stuck. Used Not to the old locker shuffle. Stuck, <laughs> yeah, stuck used to be like put in the locker and you perhaps have to find it or whatever, rather than pulling it out and having like a shadow board where you can just take it. 
Then we used to do turnout drills. A typical turnout drill would be, right, okay, turn out into the yard, pitch the 135, third drill balcony, hose reel aloft, you can either carry it aloft or pull it aloft, whatever. Let's see which crew gets water on first. So it would literally be a race. You know, you oh, would want, everybody would be professional enough to want to be first. None of this no, yeah. processional sort of stuff. You know, I like love that. I love that side yeah. of it. And, and I... People feel funny about this now. They, they feel funny about the, the competition aspect of things. Like, like competition is bad and it's not about... And it's not necessarily about winning because ultimately nobody in these, these sorts of situations wins or loses. But healthy competition really, really yeah. inspires people's the best out of them because there, there are losers and winners in life. That's just the way it is. You know, None of this oh, yeah, taking yeah. part ribbons and all that sort of stuff. Life is about winners and losers, okay? And, and it's not necessarily that we should vilify that process you should use it as a tool to encourage you to get the best out of yourselves and those around you because on a fire station you're on a team you know when we think about winners and losers yeah. i'm not talking about winners and losers on a watch as such you know you're all there to work as a team but don't yeah. be afraid from being being have that posed to you because it's a health it can be a very healthy tool i, I think it is i mean like you know when you look at why we've got pretty blue lights on the machines and stuff like that it's to save seconds yeah you know, if you're driving two miles, I don't know if you drive or not, but if you're driving yeah, yeah, two miles, yeah. you know, obviously you've got the lights, you've got the alerters. You know, we used to have two-tone horns and bells, but I mean, like now you've got the alerters and the strobe lights and all the rest of it. It's to save seconds. Yeah. So why waste seconds when you get there? Yeah. And, and this is the thing. I mean, like we're running with Lacons. We used to run with Lacon ladders. We used to run from, you know, wherever we took, took it off the appliance. We used to run and you'd be expected to get the jack bar down cock on one third of the working night so you knew which window or which balcony you were pitching to you knew where it was going to be I mean okay if you did a drill for the HMI or something they'd go around and discreetly put like chalk marks on the drill yard okay. but we didn't drill <laughs> okay. with chalk marks no. we were expected to get it right confined pitches it had to be done cock on they wanted it right first time every time and again as an 18 year old kid you're sort of playing at soldiers here you know like this yeah. why you know why, why so, be so precise so exact but then as an example, we had a fire in a terrace street and the, the Victorian builders used to build factory units for the workers and then build build the streets around them. Yeah. And as you know, terrace streets in Leicester sometimes are very narrow. People park on the side. Yeah. Can't get the appliance down. No. And I can remember distinctly having this, this factory unit. We needed a lake on. We needed it right now because otherwise we're going to lose the whole lot. Yeah. You know, if we've, if we've got the lake on pitched, as soon as we could get a jet in at the right time and we could save the building. So we ended up parking right down the end of this terrace street, probably like a 150, 200-yard run with a lake on, wow. instantly into the pitch. By the time we got there with the lake on, obviously blokes are running out Dutch rolls. We've got four Dutch rolls out, so what's that, 25 yards? It must have been at least 100 yards. I might, yeah. you know, it's middle of the night, strobe lights, you know, mm. it's a bit disorienting. But a considerable distance. Mm where we run with a lake on. And then that's how we used to drill. That's how we used to train. Towards the, the 90s, as I say, health and safety started to take over a little bit, and we lost that. All of a sudden, we couldn't run with ladders anymore, maybe even earlier than the 90s. I can't remember the exact time scale. You can't run with ladders anymore. Someone somewhere has fell over, got a hurt your knee. So now everybody across the, everybody across the nation now has got to walk with ladders. Uh, you can't do carry down anymore. We used to do carry downs, live carry downs. Okay, the bloke on the top had an arrested device, you know, mm -hmm. in case you dropped him over. 
I, I never saw anybody chuck anybody off. But all of a sudden, no, you can't do carry downs anymore. Can't do them for training. You know, no, 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 can't do carry downs. So they took out a lot of the the edgy sort of stuff. And my attitude, and a lot of the older blokes, I wasn't particularly an older bloke at the time, but I certainly picked up on their attitude was, you've got to train to do the dangerous stuff. Otherwise, you can ask mm. people who are untrained to go out to the job and do it. And that's a real potential for hope, not just for the crew, but, you know, for the people who potentially are trying to rescue. Yeah. So you've got to do the dangerous stuff in a controlled environment. And it's, again, there's so many parallels with martial arts. You can't get people sparring, touch fighting, then put them into full contact. They've got to gradually build up the intensity mm. so that when they get there on the day, the first shuddering, horrible blow yeah. goes in. Yeah. They're not totally frozen like a rabbit in the headlights yeah. because they're not used to being hit hard. You know, you've got to build it up. Mike Tyson always said um, that, didn't he? He said everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. And if you're not used to taking them blocks, them blows, sorry, then uh, it, yeah. you, know, how, you don't know how you're going to behave in it because you've never really entered in the fright or flight mode. And then when no, you do no, do that, no. which you inevitably will, all of those yeah. planning and all that tactics and all of that game strategy goes out the window. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things we train. I mean, I'm not trying to be sort of like wise after the event or whatever, but for example, RTCs, where the station near where I live, they do a lot of RTC training. And you get two cars shoved together like that. And you get the dummy. You know, <laughs> I know this isn't visual, but you get the dummy sitting there like yeah, that. You get the two cars together, and then you get a crew that get off, and they get the sort of like the Hamatro or whatever. It, I don't know if you've still got Hamatro, but they get the cutting gear off, and they do it and all that stuff. When have you ever been to an RTC like that? Well, you've got to cut somebody out. It, it, it doesn't very often happen. I, I mean, it does happen, but it's the rarity, isn't it? I mean, like, we used to cover with the ET from Central. We used to cover, like, the A47. We used to cover the M1. Mm. You get two cars on the A47, mm. both doing 70 mile an hour, 140 mile an hour impact speed. They hit each other. One ends up 100 yards away, upside down in the ditch with petrol pissing out everywhere. Yeah. The other one, he's gone off on the other direction. He's gone into a tree. And now, you know, you turn up and you've got, a set of cutting gear, and you've got two cars 200 yards apart now yeah. with screaming occupants. You know, you know what I mean? You can't train for that, I, I think. You can, okay, you can work out how to use the cutting tools, but it's difficult to train for that on a sterile drill yard mm. with the two cars shoved together. Yeah. It's an unrealistic thing. It's like, you know, you, you, yeah, you're training people the manual handling of how to use the equipment. You turn it this way, and hope you turn it this way. Mm. But, you know, your, your eye protection, you're training all the, the yeah. nice stuff. But to actually train for the incident, to my mind, you know, um, you've got to actually sort of immerse yourself in it and sort of think, well, realistically, what are we going to be facing here? Let's try and simulate that on the drill mm. yard, not just make it nice and convenient. So there's only a very, very little pile of glass to sweep up. Yeah. Let's, let's actually set it up. So that it reflects what we're going to do. We are quite um, lucky with our cutting equipment these days. I mean, we have quite a um, quite a wide range, and every appliance carries two or three. The now hydraulics, which is effectively we've lost the whole matro right. pump, so we use a, a very very powerful battery operated one, and it just pierces right, yeah, through yeah. them. So we do do a hell of a lot of cutting these days. But uh, I totally appreciate where you're coming from. It's very hard to simulate the the real environments when you just have um, a fairly benign incident put with vehicles gently pushed up against each other 
um, the the reality yeah. of an incident, especially these days when vehicles are faster um, than they ever have been. Um, yeah. We go to some very high-speed traumatic stuff. You know, in the area that I live in, yeah. there's a lot of country roads with people whipping along in nice nice sports cars, and they yeah, find, yeah. they yeah. find they find those trees and those crossroads rather uh, rather tricky to navigate sometimes. That's right. Yeah, I mean, my my son's just been home with his girlfriend. He's French and. Uh, they they call the passenger seat in the car the death seat. That, that's what she said. We, we said to her, you know, do you want to sit in the front? I know, I'm, I'm fine. They call that the death seat. And I've never heard of this before, but it's yeah. true. I mean, like, the number of cars we used to go to. Remember, I joined in on 74. I mean, like, it's before the drink driving rules, before the seatbelt rules, hmm. before airbags, before ABS, and before power steering for a lot of cars. All the safety features that we now take for granted, they weren't there then. The cars were getting quicker. So you've got like your Mini Coopers, you've got your Escort Mexicos. You know, you've got these quite fast little cars built like a biscuit tin. The crumple zone started at the front, finished at the bloody seat post, you know. <laughs> Went all the way through sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's right. I mean, there's a lane near, near Leicester or Evington called Shady Lane, and it's it's just big, big, huge trees either side. The number of tires we turn out to there, and it's exactly what George's girlfriend said. Pissed up, lad. You know, racing with his mate or whatever, they go off the road, twat a tree, and it's the passenger side that gets it. Yeah. We used to get loads of those, you know, like we go out and there's this poor kid, you know, young girl, 16 years old or whatever, her boyfriend's pissed, he's got out, he's all right, oh, you know, oh, you know, looking yeah. for sympathy or whatever, didn't get much. No. But then his poor old girlfriend is in, yeah. I could say what Melanie called this, who was probably very uncomfortable during the entire ride it wasn't their decision or her decision or his decision and this isn't always necessarily i mean i know we use the example there of perhaps a very selfish uh, young individual which isn't stereotypical of all of them but even even just a common survival instinct is when you're heading towards that danger you instinctively will turn away from it and that inherently means whoever's sat in that proverbial death seat is is going to take a brunt of the impact and you're right i've seen that myself many times yeah it's uh it was different then. We had an ET at Central, which was pretty busy. I mean, most Friday and Saturday nights, I mean, it used to be a gang of us. The procedure used to be, I mean, it might be different now because, you've, you've, as you say, you've got cutting equipment on, on most frontline pumps. Yeah. At the time, we had an RTA pump, which was 301 was its nomination at the time. And that and the ET used to turn out. So you got seven blokes. And the ET was like a mobile workshop. You know, it, it had... A walking area at the back. We used to call it the blood wagon because if you went out to something really snotty, all the kit would be chucked in the back of the ET. Yeah. And then you'd like literally wash it out. You know, it was, back, yeah. yeah, that's right. It used to carry all the all the spare BA sets as well. So it was it was a sort of comms vehicle. Yeah. You know, BA tender and emergency tender at the same time. And I talk to lads now, you know, when's the last time you went to an RTA? Oh oh yeah, oh crikey, when do we have one? eight months ago or something like that. Yeah. We used to be like very, very regular. I mean, I wouldn't say every Friday night, but on many occasions, again, this is before the drink rivals, we used to turn out, the A47 used to be absolutely bloody lethal going out to Leicester. We used to go turn out to loads there. Mm. And again, the same sort of thing, you know, we used to train. We used to train religiously. If we went to a vehicle, when I first joined, we had what's called sengasaws and zip guns, which were, they were, they were pneumatic tools. Yeah. Like a recip saw. Uh, took a lot of, like a reciprocating saw. Yeah, exactly. Recip- you know, the Senga saw was just like a, a short thing. Yeah. I mean, it'd go through an A-post okay. Once vehicles started getting a little bit too, say, for example, uh, Volvos, mm. they were probably the first that used to have a real solid steel bar through the, the whole passenger cage. Yeah. It just wouldn't touch it. 
But then luckily, so fairly soon afterwards, we started getting the, the whole, the whole drop, mattress. Yeah, the, whole mattress yeah. the zip guns, we used to take roofs off, literally by opening them like a tin can. You'd start off with a tool almost vertical to punch a hole through the skin of the roof. Then you'd, you'd change the angle to about a 30-degree angle so you could drive through. It's like a, a pneumatic chisel. Yeah. You'd go through, you'd cut a, a big hole. So rather than cutting through the A, the B, the C post either side, lifting the roof off you'd make a, a big sort of u-shape cut in it then peel it back wow. then cut through all the fabric well of course that had to change as soon as you started installing airbags and things like that where you've got to be you're concerned about cutting away exposing cylinders and all the rest of it but that's the way we used to do it you know we had a but, nibbler for some time when i first joined which was a very very similar tool and it allowed you to just peel away like a tin opener just peel away skins of the vehicle but now with yeah. all the reinforced steel and stuff like that it really adds yeah. a whole level of complexity and i feel like we don't necessarily um communicate as much with oh well, there's two things there so we don't communicate as much with the vehicle manufacturers to get a good understanding of what's actually in these things and also the ability for us to get hold of vehicles now it can actually be quite difficult yeah. you know and you, you you'd love yeah. to be able to cut a, an entire vehicle to pieces do all your glass drills do all your door drills you know yeah. roll it over with the winch or something like that and and really go to town on one almost every set if you could and that's that's where you're getting that yeah. consistent exposure but you can be waiting you can be waiting months now to get a vehicle returned we were lucky i mean when i was at eastern we used to have a good relationship with a bloke called Herbie who had a scrapyard. <laughs> and Herbie would come around and bring a car around and we'd, you know, he'd, he'd sort of lay a bit off, put it in the yard and we'd just descend on it like locusts, just <laughs> completely obliterate it, ring him up and then he'd come back and sort of pick up this, the chassis because we'd load all the cut-off pieces on it, pick yeah. it up, take that one away, bring us another one. So we're really lucky like that at Eastern. Central, not so much. No, we used to have scrap cars but they'd be there for a while. Talking about, going back to airbags, I mean, Years ago, I mean, I'm going back, like I say, when I joined them, probably years before that, going back to the 50s, when fast jets had ejector seats, we used to have an ejector seat key. I don't know if you still carry them. No. But the idea was to disable the charges on the ejector seat. Oh, wow. So if you had to rescue a pilot, I mean, obviously, if a fast jet, if a fast jet came down at that angle, I mean, it would be sort of like spread over a mile <laughs> radius. But yeah. Well, the ejector seats at the time used to have explosive charges, obviously, to lift them yeah. up and out the canopy. And we used to have ejector seat pins that you could actually fit into a, a Harrier or whatever, whatever jet it was. Wow. Not that, I mean, we'd be there to sort of back up the RAF crew. So, yeah. you know, so, I mean, we'd only be there to sort of like provide grunt, provide manpower. Mm. But we used to carry these ejector seat keys. And I actually wrote, believe it or not, you know, my... No, not in a, a corny sort of way, but I actually contacted a couple of major car manufacturers and said, well, why the hell don't we have some facility on a car where we can literally put a key in? Yeah, just a special it. firefighter slot or something like that yeah, where we can have a special just, key, disengages all of yeah. the, uh, yeah. Yeah, deactivate. So either empties, yep. either empties, any that haven't been already been activated or, or just completely switches off the power. Yeah, for, for all of the supplementary um, restraint system, because yeah. there's loads of yeah. loads of things you know that can that can be a hazard to firefighters when we're trying to do that extrication. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, when I was in, there was a bloke, an American chap, who I watched the the video. It's quite horrific, really. But he was leaning over the casualty, trying to do something. The airbag deployed, hit hit the side of his helmet, which then buried itself deep into the face of the casualty. Yeah, I think the firefighter and the casualty were both. He I just gets knocked out, doesn't he? I've seen it. He goes limp and he yeah. just hits the deck. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that that's just one that was caught on video. You know, for every rare occasion yeah, yeah. it's actually caught, you know, thousands more yeah. have probably had it happen to them. Covered lots of bits there. We haven't directly mentioned thousand degrees at the ceiling. Are you happy for me to ask a few questions about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, the first thing I'll say is it's I've taken it off sale. Okay. At the moment. I've got it, but what I ask people to do, I mean, people have asked for it. What I ask people to do is to make a donation to the firefighters' charity. And you can do that by text message. Mm-hmm. So you go on the firefighters' charity site. There's a number you can text. They get £5, and it just comes off your monthly bill. Yeah. And then if they do that, send me the acknowledgement from the firefighters' charity, which comes up obviously immediately on your phone, screenshot it, send it to me with an email address, and then I'll send them the PDF. Love it. Because I was selling it through Amazon. Mm. Um, it sold pretty well. Mm. It has some good reviews. The only bad review it got was from a woman who, unfortunately, I criticised an officer because he was he was bloody effeminate and ineffective. To be honest, he was wasn't in, in my opinion he wasn't a good good officer at all. Okay. Yeah, he was a nice enough man, but he, he wasn't. The, I mean, Jack Tansley, if he turned up to a, an incident. Everybody breathed a sigh of relief because you knew that things were going to start. Yeah, the balance shifted. Just that one man turning up, all of a sudden, things were going to start. Yeah, coming good. There was an air of control yeah, and an air of you know people feel at ease with that level of you know practicality or responsibility that some people bring to it. It's also that command presence. Some people just don't have it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this this chap I talked about. I mean, uh, you know, this was the only bad review the book got. Um. It was a chap. I'll, I'll just tell you one funny little story. I know it's going off at a tangent. Please do. The tangents we are the a, best ones. We had a chemical incident, and we turned up, and there was a brown bottle leaking fluid. And we looked on the side. So obviously we rigged up in, in chemical suits or the rest of it, you know, yep. full Monty, full procedure, you know, chemical incident unit standing by, showers all set up for decontamination. Yep, you know, like yep. We really, really did the full thing. And we didn't mind doing that because we thought even if it's not a problem, it's, it's not an issue. It's just another training session, really. But when Standard operating procedure. We know we need to do it, so let's just crack on. Yeah. Anyway, this particular officer turned up, shirt sleeve, black cap, because obviously then officers still used to wear a uniform with all the, all the braiding and yeah, you know, yeah. fancy stuff. He went over to this brown bottle, picked it up, and went, because like we thought it might be phenol. And phenol, as you, I'm sure you're aware, is a, a very, very unpleasant yeah. substance. Absolutely. Picked it up, went... Took a big sniff in and went, no, that's not phenol. So, knock off, make up. You know, and we just stood there and thought, what the hell are we dressed up like this for on a Sunday morning? Because yeah. Superman here, this super officer, all he needed was a cape. He can come <laughs> over and just sniff stuff and just decide straight away. You know, his nose is so finely sensitive to the... But also, what a gamble. Table. What a gamble. He could, oh, have, yeah. he could have just hit the deck then. He could have just gone... Bump. Yeah. Anyway, I mentioned this this chap, you know, as being a, quite an ineffective sort of leader, uh, and that was the only bad review the book got, so I'm sorry that went on for a while. Um, why did I write the book? I mean, a, a few years ago, I'd been to the Firefighters' Tea, which uh, Pete and Steve Kisby organised. Yeah. And Steve Kisby was trying to get people to tell stories. That's exactly it. Stories oh, to, mate, yeah. Sorry, go on, I love that. Yeah, it, was, it, it was trying to get people to send stories of incidents to him. So he collate it all. And I think you've got one response. I don't think people are interested because part part of the job is you don't like to dig yourself up. You don't like to put yourself forward. Oh, look at me. I did this brave thing. 
you know, I mean, I, I can understand the reluctance to do that because you're part of a crew and nobody wants to sort of say, it was me, it was me. Mate, I get that entirely. And that's the whole thing with the podcast. I always say yeah. to people, it's, it's tough, you know, and, and it's sometimes unpopular or people just feel awkward or whatever to stand there and oh, bang your chest and beat your drum and I am the, the voice yeah. of the emergency yeah. services. Oh, you're the voice of the emergency services, I beat. No, I'm not. I'm not. This is why yeah. it's the Firefighters podcast. It's not the Pete Wakefield podcast because what we do love is the stories yeah. and it's not you it's not gary it's not any of the other guests talking about themselves yeah. it's somebody sincerely asking and this is what the public want to hear this is what other firefighters want to hear yeah. you know if you ask somebody to send in the stories they might be reluctant but if you were sat and you'd do it a thousand times guys you know sat in a room full of old firefighters it'd be stories oh, galore. Yeah, yeah. stories yeah. galore you just need to put a bloody yeah. put a dictaphone in the middle of the room you'd have a thousand yeah well when, the reason i wrote the book i mean there was a couple of reasons really um, Steve had tried to get people to come together and put stories in. A few years before, I retired at 50. I could have gone on to 55, but I retired at 50 because my youngest son had been really ill. Um, we nearly lost him, which was quite traumatic for me, for my wife. You know, it's a very horrible time, really. Sorry to hear that. Um, my wife afterwards was quite unwell. You know, she was quite sort of down about it, you know, because obviously as a mother, you try everything you can to. Course. save your child and he eventually was taken into hospital and it was a bit touch and go and you know he pulled through and he's now young and strong and playing rugby and you know everybody's happy but it could have gone a different but way it, it could easily have gone a different way so this this is one reason I retired a few years earlier than I needed to yeah. but one thing that was great is I retired at 50 because you know the youngster was quite bad um People heard that he was bad, or even though I retired. And the, the Benevolent Fund, as it was at the time, obviously Firefighters Charity now, at the time it was the National Benevolent Fund, the rep was brilliant. He came around and he said, look, why don't you just go away? There's, we've got this place down in Devon, Harkham House. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Did you go? Yeah, lovely place. It says you, you don't need to go there for therapy. They're not going to make you bloody swim with weights on or anything like that. <laughs> just go down there for a recuperative break. It's a lovely Devon Valley. Yeah. Just got out there, and it was just what my wife needed, to be honest. I mean, we all needed. Um, so we went down, and obviously, because we were benefactors of the of beneficiaries of the charity, mm. uh, I think we paid about 30 quid or something, you know, like uh, for a week of us, yeah. a, a whole family for a week. So I've always been one. I'm not trying to be Mother Teresa, but I've always been one. I don't like taking charity. I'd rather, if I can, I could give something back. So I thought, well, Pete's. Um, Steve's not had much joy getting this book sorted out. I can't talk about everybody else's story because asking, trying to draw stuff out of people is going to be difficult anyway. Mm. What I can do is talk about my story, my time in the fire service. So I styled it as 1,000 degrees at the ceiling because I can remember distinctly going into a house fire. Um, bear in mind, we didn't have flash hoods at the time. We just had the eight sets and then just the helmets stood on top. So all your... All your skin Jeez. at the back was completely exposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can remember You've going well to keep your hair, brother, because I know uh, a couple of firefighters from that age, I've seen a lot of scold marks on the top of people's uh, crowns where they've obviously been sweating and it's just been boiling off the top of their head inside the helmet. Yeah. I think I think most of us got scars, you know, at the time. I mean, I've, I've certainly got scars. Um, but I got into this house for it, and I, afterwards the investigation pointed out that they estimated the temperature at the ceiling was 1,000 degrees. 
I can't remember if he said F or C, but either way, it no, was no, totally believable. I've been in some of the hot yeah. boxes that didn't have the fire loading that would have been present yeah. back then. I mean, yeah. fire loading yeah. and, and you know anti-flame and fire retardant materials that we have now. We don't really face the materials yeah. that you faced back then, not at all. But I can remember this. So this figure, thousand degrees, stuck in my mind. I thought, well, that, yeah. So the title of the book was "The Thousand Degrees at the Ceiling: Life on the Thin Red Line." Now I should have put my life on the thin red line because people thought life on the would be sort of all inclusive to include all all five hundred. So we're really it's me. I think, it's, I think it's a great title. I really I'm honestly a little bit jealous of it to be honest with you. <laughs> but uh, I think it's a well, fantastic so, title. So I the first part of the book was about the training and the recruitment procedure, which is pretty much what we talked about already in the other way the training was. The second part was just incidents and it was just essays really about in no particular order. If an incident came to mind, I'll just write down what I remembered about that incident. <clears throat> um, a few rescues have done, you know, some things I've been involved with that could have gone partially wrong, you know. <laughs> um, I, wrote, I wrote them down essay style, and then afterwards I sort of copied and pasted and put yeah, it yeah. around. It, like, it's a labour of love, mate. Honestly, putting a book together. Yeah. I uh, I made an attempt at it a few years ago, and I've still got all the stuff sitting somewhere. But it really people yeah. underestimate how much it takes to do that. Yeah, so yeah. I take my hat off to you going through the process. Well, yeah, I did it, and I, I put it on for sale on on Amazon, and I didn't really expect to take off. My goal was to raise five hundred quid because I thought I've been down there for a week. I don't know how much they normally let the bungalows out for if you just want to go for a break. But I thought if I raise five hundred quid, that's fine. Um, I was a little bit surprised and disappointed at the charity because I said to the charity, right, is there a tax-efficient way I can send you the money? Yeah. And they were sort of like, what money? And I said, well, I wrote this book. It's for sale now. Royalties are coming in. So it varies. You know, one month, I mean, I think one month I got about 300, sorry, that was with both books, the martial arts book and the, uh, about 300 pounds, so probably 150 pounds. Um. So is there a tax-efficient way I could do this? Because if, mm. I, if I actually gift-aid it to you, you'll get the extra 25%. And they were a bit sort of like, well, oh, no, no, we're not really comfortable with that because I put in the introduction of the book, um, part of the proceeds of this sale, I couldn't say all of it, but part of the proceeds yeah. will be donated to the firefighters charity. And the goal was to raise 500 quid. Mm. Um, they were a little bit sniffy about that, to be honest, which surprised me because they were sort of like, oh, no, you can't say you're doing it on behalf of the charity because people might buy your book instead of somebody else's. And so anyway, long, long story short, um, I decided probably the easiest thing to do was just to, to take into account the fluctuation and just make a standing order from myself, a personal standing order to the charity. Yeah. So obviously some months I got a little bit more, some months got a little bit less. Yeah, sales. And it was yeah. for sale for about, I think it was for sale for about 18 months. I had a couple of complaints because I tried very hard not to give too much away with the incidents. Yeah. I didn't really elaborate them. And sometimes I had to like change the venue. So, for example, if I said we turned out to Wigston or something like that, it might have been another venue, but I was just trying to disguise it a little bit. Mm. But there was two particular incidents I described that were quite quite rarities. And I was contacted by family members who sort of said, well, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? So, well, I'm writing about the fire service, you know, I'm trying to raise money for charity. Yeah, well, you know, we didn't give you permission to write about my dad or, or whatever. So oh, I'm terribly sorry if I'm offended. I mean, that was never the intention. I did disguise some details. I mean, you've obviously put two and two together and made 
When you know what the real story is, it, you can be, you yeah. can get very, very defensive and you can connect the dots because you know what the real story is. But yeah, I could quite sure. easily, re- and I have done at times, you know, recall an incident and I'll replace the, the place and I'll replace the location and I might even replace the sex of the casualties. Yeah, yeah, but I will describe yeah. the rest of it in such innate detail because it's true yeah. that people will yeah. go well, that was my dad. And you go, well, hang on a minute. The, yeah, person, yeah. the casualty yeah. was a woman and it was in yeah. it was in a different area. And they're like, no, but I know that's them. And I'm like, yeah, but nobody else does. So actually, yeah. it's irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, long story short, I mean, I, I raised enough money for the charity. <clears throat> so I thought the easiest thing now, I, I fell out with Amazon a bit as well because Amazon, they're not they're not friends to authors. They try to make out, oh, we're here to help, help authors. They're, they're really not. They're there to make money and that's that's it. They were taking money off me for US tax, which is ironic because they don't really pay tax over here. <laughs> um, they kept sending me these bloody tax forms to fill out. I'd spend an hour filling it out, all the details, blah, 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 send it off. A month later, we've not received your form. You know, yeah. So they were taking money off me for US tax. That was being taken off at source. Then at the time I'd left the job, so obviously I was, I was filling out a self, self-employed tax return, doing odd jobs, bit of driving, I was filling out a self-assessment tax return, putting royalties down. So I was losing another 20% for that. So all of a sudden, for selling it, I think I sold it for $3.99 or something, I was getting about 50p per book. But this is rubbish. So I thought the easiest thing to do is take it off Amazon, so stick two fingers up to Jeff Bezos, whatever his name is. (laughs) He's got enough, don't worry. Um, And then anybody who wants to, Anybody who wants to, if they email me, my email address is quite quite open to the public. So anybody who wants to can email me with that acknowledgement. We'll put it all. In, we'll put it all in the detail for the podcast anyway. That well, what, what it's called, how people can contact you, making the donation to the charity. All of that's going to go in the links. Well, the way I do it now, obviously, is everything goes to the charity. So the, the US tax gets nothing. The UK tax gets nothing. I'm not bothered for me. I mean, I wrote it as a lot memoir. Really, I actually wrote it. You know, for the reasons described, I also thought it'd be good for my sons. Mm. Um, my sons were reaching the point where they were sort of like trying to look at careers, what they wanted to do. They've not really expressed an interest in the past, so it was completely fine. But I tried to sort of put over that it's a great life. It's a life well spent helping other people. Oh God, it is. Yeah, I was. I, I count myself very fortunate to do a job that I really enjoyed. People didn't get on with everybody, and nobody gets on with everybody. You know, I'm quite a stubborn bastard, so I did fall out with some people. <laughs> But doing the job helping people, I mean, you know, you get, think about the fire brigade, you get paid three times, you get your wages, which you'd expect from any job, you get the camaraderie, you get the fun, the laughter and all the rest of it, good times on station, and you get the gratitude of the public. Now, yeah. uh, I'm not being all milky eyed here, I'm not being, I'm not sobbing myself into to sleep or anything about it, but <laughs> it's just a good feeling, you know, I mean, uh, for years, I mean, I can remember doing one rescue, we got, we got a woman out of a, a house, she came to the station afterwards to say thank you. She took my, my name, I, know, I think my name was in the Leicester Mercury or something like that, but she took my name. And she used to send a Christmas card every year oh, by wow. station. Eventually, she went on to have a daughter of her own who has now got another daughter. So, like, it wasn't just that one particular girl that we helped. It wasn't me, personally. It was the crew. Yeah, yeah, but... I think I was wearing BA, but, I mean, it, as we say, it just part of who was wearing BA at the time or climbing the ladder. I mean, it's just, you know, yeah, yeah. whoever does it. Anybody would have done it, um, but the fact of the matter is you were the one that was there at the time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, we quite easily could have been somebody else. I mean, I'm not, not sort of like... No, 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 mind, no, no, mind, no, no. I mean, just part of the crew. But these things are very special. I mean, I, I used to belong to a charity group. It, this charity raised millions 
for good causes. And there's some very, very wealthy people. I can remember sitting you know, at a dinner, I can remember sitting next to a man who was here in the realm and he sort of worked, he'd been his whole time looking after the family pile. You know, he'd run the family businesses, the farms and had staff and all that stuff. But he was coming to the end of his life. He just had a cancer diagnosis and he sat there. It was very, very sad, really. Millionaire, this bloke. You know, I could say titled, you know, sat in the Lords. And he said, well, I'm going to go soon. You know, it's not much they can do. It's terminal. You know, I'm just getting pain relief. And you, you go towards the grave and you wonder if you really made a difference. I've looked after this big old house, big drafty old house. You know, looked after the tenants as best I can, the farmers and the rest of it. It's just, you know, you, you wonder really at this time of life, do, have you made a difference? Now, this is the great thing about the fire service. I'm sure you've got it. You know that you have made a difference. Mate, yeah. As corny as it sounds, you know, I'm not going to go to my grave thinking, I wonder if I help people because we got paid for doing it. You know, <laughs> that's a marvellous bloody thing, really. I can't understand that, but I never understood talking about good officers. I never understood kids who come in at sort of like an early age full of bloody piss and vinegar, before they've done anything, really. You know, like, they've, they've done fuck all, really. They've done hardly anything, job-wise, incident-wise. Yeah. They've got no real experience. Boom, they're off on the career trajectory, which takes them up as high yeah. as they can go. They're on 100 grand a year in charge of men and machines and all that stuff. Basically, their skills, their basic skill set, practical, rolling around in the mud, you know, holding the back of heads on after motorcycle. It's not there. They've not done it. And I, I could never really understand. I mean, I never, after the first few officers I had, which were real, there were men amongst men, if that's yes. an old-fashioned expression, know, if yeah. that makes sense. I'd see young, young officers. I mean, like, just before I retired, I had some right bloody arguments with some of them. You know, so full of themselves. I felt like, I said, what have you done? Tell me what you've done. Tell me... You know exactly. what, mate? What I just, I just want to catch you there because I, I agree with you, and I'm literally my my passion is bursting now because I don't want to go into too much of it. But we have these promotion processes and all this sorts of stuff now, right? And everyone's yeah. forever arguing about the metrics that we use and all this sort of stuff. And and I'm I'm one that's like, can't you just sit down and tell me what have you, 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 Gary, what have you done yeah. to add value in your role? that's aligned yeah. with the purpose of the fire service. What have you done? Don't tell me about yeah. an exam. Yeah, exams are nice. Okay, we all like exams. Yeah, and they show you've got at least the ability to absorb knowledge. But that doesn't show me what yeah. you've done. What have you yeah. done? And how has that added value to your crew, to your team, or to the community? Yeah. And people, that is a really awkward, simple question. Because people yeah. want to list off oh, I've got a certain character trait, or, oh, I've, I've passed a certain exam. Okay, great. So what yeah. have you done with that? What have you yeah. actually done that you can honestly, and other people would agree and assign your name to that and say, Gary helped yeah. out with this, and it went from here to here, it impacted that family, or it impacted this team. And, and that is something uh, that people feel awkward about it. Because I think so yeah. many people know they're not doing anything. No, that's right. I always had this theory. As an example of that, we had a particular principal officer. He'd moved. I think he was, we were about his fifth or sixth brigade. So there's a man who's got a family who's prepared to take his wife out of whatever she's doing. Sorry, love, we're moving. I want an extra bloody pip. Took his kids out of school. So they, they were bullied at school because every every couple of years when he got a promotion, they were going to a new school and being picked on because they didn't speak like the locals. And eventually... Fantastic, they arrive at principal officer status, brilliant. But I, I could never have lived my life like that. You know, I, I was quite happy to be a crew manager. 
you know, if the opportunity presented itself, I mean, I, I did deputise for the watch manager on occasions. Uh, I could have seen myself being a watch manager. But above that, if I'd had to start hopping around from brigade to brigade, yeah. get promotions, no, I, I don't, don't see myself in that mould at all. I've never understood, as I said earlier, I've never understood why people are doing a job like we do, you know, which is going out. And it's, it's a bit of a cliched term, but the role of the emergency services to impose order on chaos, you go out to a, a shit situation and you try and get the best possible result. Yeah. And that's where your satisfaction is. Not, not looking at bloody computer screens. And Just, just before I re- retired, we had one bloke, I think he's still in the job, right? Well, you can edit this out, but what a twat he was. <laughs> it, it, came on the, it came on the station. Right, I've done all the computer predictions. Um, you don't need an ET. What? You don't need an ET. So I said, look, excuse me, have you thought this through? We've bus road, yeah. lots of RTCs. We've got a major road, a rail network, an airport. Got all these risks. We've got major chemical factories. Got all these risks. We need an ET. No, 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 no. I've done it all on the computer. I thought, as soon as he said, I've done it all on the computer, I just thought, you're not living in my world, mate. You're not rolling around in the mud like we have to, trying to get people out of cars at three o'clock in the morning. You're sitting in front of a computer screen in an air-conditioned office between nine and five. You know, I mean, okay, he might go out occasionally in the supervisory role. By the time he gets there, the job's half done. But um, I just thought then, that's the death of that's the death of officerdom, as I remember it. Do you know what I hear um, when I hear that? Because um, I've been aware of several individuals like the like the individual that you describe in there. And what I yeah. feel when I walk away from conversations like that, the biggest thing I hear there is the poor soft skills and the poor communication. I'm not trying to get too yeah. arty-farty with it or anything like that. But on the fire ground, so let's take you back to when you were pulling up outside and we wanted to get the hose rule down the middle of these cars and it needed to be slick and it needed yeah. to be efficient. Yeah. yeah, we wanted efficiency, wanted to maximise the crew that we've got with us. Yeah. Now, at the very core of it, that's what some, not all, some, some some principal officers are just trying to make a name for themselves, but some of them yeah. are also looking for efficiencies. Now, the problem is sometimes, yeah. from, from seeing the other side of the coin, they spend a lot of time in front of a computer doing the yeah. legwork, for want of a better description, and they come out with an efficiency that they think... The, the computer has told them through the number of incidents, the, the where the money's spent and all this sort of stuff. Now, what I feel should happen, and, and I worked in a, in a statistical analyst role where I did lots of marginal gains in a, in a fast-moving consumer goods, big billion-pound company before I was in the fire service. Now, we would yeah. do all of this. We'd go on a big food production line and we'd see the efficiency on a computer and we'd go, this is what we need to achieve, right? And then what I would do and what other members of the team would do and what you see great leaders do is... I'd go out with no bloody clipboard, with no preconceived ideas or anything like that, and I would try and understand what the pulse of the team is. What do they feel? Where do they see efficiencies? Where do they, if this was their fast-moving consumers line, or if this was their fire service, where do they think the money is best spent, and where, how how would they justify it in their mind, and not try and trigger the defensiveness because it needs to be, we need to be a team. You know, it needs to be a collaborative decision. Yeah, it needs to be yeah. something that we arrive at together. I need to marry up the statistics with Gary, the boots on the ground, the, the crew commander yeah. of the team that's actually doing the job. We need to marry these up and then also accept that neither of us are going to get, it's not going to fit our box entirely in the same way that we want it to but it becomes a lot more of a, a collective decision. But like you say, if somebody walks out and says, we're going to get rid of the ET, it's not warranted, immediately you backs up. Yeah. 
immediately he backs up you're defensive yeah. and you've you've lost doesn't matter how right you are if the numbers say or anything like that and also there's this right and wrong you know it's not about you being right or them being wrong it's about yeah how do we get the best out of what we've got because that's what you do on the drill ground on the day every day that's what you do on the instant ground every day you know you've got limited personnel how do i get the most out of them we're looking for efficiencies yeah. but i think it all comes down to communication and you said it so well when you spoke about you know people that either don't like the job or hate the job now versus what it was like back then. It wasn't because they didn't like the job. You know, you had such a strong culture that I hear you speak about on those stations. And it's the people. comes down to the people. It's not the uniform. It's not the kit. It's not the pay. It's not the policies. It's not not even the community that you serve. It's the people that you're around and their ability to build those relationships. Is there anything that that you feel is is (laughs) remotely relevant about that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I mean, I noticed the sea change. And the time I was in the job, um, again, I mentioned about Jack Tansley. He'd turn up to an incident and all of a sudden things would start changing for the better. Mm. They were hands on. He'd go to the hottest part of the fire. He'd go to the, he'd find the branchman that was nearest to the hottest part of the fire. He'd come and stand right next to you, right? And place his hand on his shoulder. Hello, mate. What can you see? What's going on? Yeah. I mean, I'll just tell you about an incident I had just before I finished. The watch manager was off. So I was in charge of the the watch on that particular night and we turned out two pumps and an ET in fact I think it was, to start with it was one pump and the ET because the other pump was off station seven blokes now we got a minibus that had gone off the motorway rolled several times going down the embankment with a load of immigrant workers in now, none of them spoke English at all I don't think any of them had probably been restrained in the vehicle so there were no sort of like collision injuries but there was a lot of peripheral injuries where they'd rolled in this vehicle Yeah, and this vehicle was about 60 foot down a 45 degree slope. It's either, it's like a railway track. It's like either a cutting or an embankment. And it gone down the embankment. It gone through this wooden, small wooden fence, rolled a few times, ended up on its, on its side. So we talk about RTCs earlier, you know, how do you chock and block that? We've got a minibus that's on a, a wet, greasy, muddy slope, 45 degree slope. Any sort of great movements might make it sort of go down. So we ended up lashing it with lines to trees because yeah. the windows had gone out. We ended up wrapping yeah. GP lines. I'd probably go off the, ax- the axles and the A and B posts or something like that and try and just, like say, stabilise, just capture the load to start yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, we stabilised it by lashing it to trees, basically. So, you know, we've got everything stabilised. The ambulances turned up. Obviously, they, you know, we'd been mobilised to it, I think, by the police or whatever, but the ambulances turned up. We've got to ferry these casualties. Got some walking wounded. We got some that needed sort of assistance. They've got to be sort of half carried up. And we got some that got quite severe injuries, so they needed stretching up. So I'm dealing with this with seven blokes. And we've got about 60 feet, 45 degree wet. That's get hard up. So we graft. put lines and we sit, pull That's ourselves up. hard graft. It's hard graft. I mean, we're taking two or three of us each time. We're taking these coaches up sort of one at a time. Two or three of us, you know, trying to get the other sorted out. So... This is just one instance. In the meantime, several officers had turned up. They'd been mobilised. They'd turned up in their vehicles, right? They've got all these lovely cars, all the BMWs, all the, you know, whatever they are with the lovely pretty blue lights on. And they were sitting on this wooden fence. There's about five or six of them by now sitting on this wooden fence watching what we're doing. Not one of them came down. Not one of them came and asked for a briefing, took over. They all stood there talking about the bloody football or whatever they're talking about on this wooden fence. So we're grafting. It must have been an hour we're grafting trying to get these people. I don't remember there were 12, two of them quite badly injured. Got them up. So I called people in for an informal sort of debrief. Right, well done, lads. You know, like that, that was a shit job. You know, everybody's shit job. Everybody's exhausted. So fed up. The officers sort of like stood in. Sort of like on the periphery as I was giving like an informal debrief. Let's get back to the station, get the kit sorted out. 
you know, get a brew, we'll talk about it a bit more when we get there. So anyway, the crew's mount up and all the rest of it, the officers get in the cars, except for one. And he came over to me and he said, uh, Gary, quick word, yeah? He said, uh, you're wearing the wrong tabard. Oh. I went, what? what? He says, you're wearing the wrong tabard. What are you talking about? What happened now? You know, like, what? I sort of looked down, you know, what? And he said, you're wearing the RTC tabard, which is correct, except that you're no longer on the motorway, so you should have swapped it for the incident commander tabard. So you can imagine my reaction. I sat there watching us, struggling. Not one of you came down and laid, you know, lifted a finger. Nobody said, what do you need? I'll get comms, you know, whatever. We didn't need any more pumps particularly. Once we established that only two were quite sort of badly hurt, you know. Well, I thought, that's just the way the job's going. When I compare it to the old officers, who would have got stuck in. Yeah. And okay, there's this theory now, command theory, that you step back. Yeah, I read about not, the command not all theory of you, though. One of them. One of yeah, them step back. This, co- this command theory where you're standing inside a dustbin lid and you don't you don't let yourself get distracted because you've got to get the overview, you know, you've got to sort of like, you know... Yes, take the, a, the incident commander, which was you at the time. Absolutely. Not, yeah. not other... I mean, maybe one of them could be doing some operational performance monitoring and, you know, mentoring yeah. and or giving you feedback, yeah. but not six people. Yeah, not six foot away sitting on a fence. No, they're not going to give no, much great not, feedback not. from that, other than when they see you afterwards no. and go, hey, mate, it looks like you're wearing a wrong yeah. tabard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you that, saw that, it from your ivory tower, my good man. <laughs> yeah, ex- well, worse to that effect. Now, there's a bit more anglo in there when I said it, but, yeah. But I just noticed that was the way that the job was going. You know, you've got a lot of officers who sort of like they drove a desk. I mean, even drill. Jack Tansley, I keep coming back to Jack Tansley. I'm not like a fanboy, but credit where it's due. You know, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a good officer. You know what, mate? Just, just a pause you there because that comes back to recognition. You know, I just want to acknowledge you there because yeah. that is recognition. And we need to get a lot yeah. better at that as well. You know, after that incident there, yeah. you know, I'm sure you, yeah. would, you would have been responsive to the, uh, to the command tabard remark had it had been preceded by... Bloody hell, mate, that was an absolute graft. Really sorry that we didn't seem to come and get involved. We've actually got a massive incident happening in the city. Uh, we were trying to organise yeah, yeah, yeah. that. Um, really, really apologetic. Yeah. It looks like the lads did a great job. Look, make sure everybody's okay. Yeah. And then follow that final final button hook at the end. But acknowledgement, recognition, it's not, come on, guys, it's not rocket science, guys. No, no, that's right. Again, coming back, coming back to training and sort of like the ethos of the job. I can remember Jack Tansley driving into the yard. He used to have a Rover, Red, Red Rover 2000, something, something, 999, you know, so a quite distinctive vehicle, drove in. Of course, when he drove in the yard, the, the sub-officer or the station officer was sort of like, oh, would leap into attention. And he came into the yard and we were, expe- we were just about to do drill. And we were expecting him to come over and say, right, bad news, lads, you know, such and such has happened or, or whatever. You know, some there must have been some reason for interrupting the drill session. Uh, they went to the boot of his vehicle, got his kit out, donned his kit, came over in his full DO regalia, you know, and the station officer said to him, you know, like, um, morning sir, you know, everything all right, yeah, 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 would you like to take the drill? So he said, no, 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 I'm sure you've got something planned. He went and got in the line. Yes, brother. <laughs> he got in the line and he was doing lake on drills, all the rest of it, he was doing the training. Yeah. And afterwards, went upstairs, had a cup of tea and all the rest of it. When I tell people this, they don't believe it, but it's, I swear to God, it's true. We went upstairs, you know, like caps off, no no real formality. You know, would you want a cup of tea? Do you want a bacon cob? You know, like, mm. you know the usual stuff. And then somebody sort of said to him, well, you know, like, what are you doing? And he said, well, I might turn out to an incident where somebody gets hurt and we mm. need to pitch a lake on. Yeah. 
I've got to make sure my skills are up to date. Mm. I always do this. Whenever we get a new recruit, we just had a new recruit on our station. And we were doing, uh, they have to learn the basics of pumping and all that sort of stuff. And the the LPP, or PPU as we call it now, you know, the lightweight portable pump, pumping from open water, is always one of those little bit of a black magic skills for people that haven't done it before. You've got to feather it, you've got to play about with it. And when it's dry, it's always the hardest because the seals aren't wet and all this sort of stuff. Whenever we step up on that on the first one, I'm always like, I'm going to go first. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it first because otherwise people are always like, oh, it's always the hardest when it's first. Why do I have to go first? Yeah. That's that. I says, yeah, I would never ask somebody to do something I'm not willing to do myself. Yeah, and yeah, if it doesn't yeah. bloody work, then let's have it not work on me, and then I can demonstrate. Yeah, yeah. People can give me feedback, and I can demonstrate how you yeah. want to take feedback. So I can be like, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I wasn't feathering the clutch. I didn't see the you know the compound gauge jump or anything like yeah, that. Yeah. You've got to be willing to put yourself yeah. in that position. I love to hear leaders like that doing it. Yeah. Well, well like I say, Jack, Jack came down. When I had my exit interview with the chief, I think I surprised him really because he sent me this sort of letter, you know, like, I'm sorry, you go in and all this, all this, like, you know, quite complimentary, which nice. So I always offer people an exit interview. Would you like to take advantage of that? So, yes, please. Definitely. So I went up, I arrived <laughs> right at the appointed time, you know, like best, best bib and tucker. Secretary brought me in, you know, like the office smelt lovely, you know, nice wood panelling and leather and oh, very impressive. Very nice. <laughs> Not very like a fire station. Anyway, she, hello, Mr. Chamberlain. I said, well, I'm in Chamberlain. Well, just Gary will do. Would you like a cup of tea? Oh, yes, please. I thought she was going to say, would you like Darjeeling or Earl Grey or something? <laughs> but yeah, just, <laughs> I'll have a cup of tea. No. Like some biscuits, yeah, yeah, anything you got, you know, that's fine. Anyway, the chief came in, he said, oh, um, um, you know, Fireman Chamberlain or, you know, Gary or whatever, you know, so lovely to see you, you know, yeah, very, very polite, you know, you know, neatly pressed shirt and all this sort of stuff, never been any near any grime for years. He said, you know, is there anything you'd like to say? I said, well, yeah, I think you're making the biggest mistake you've ever made, possibly in your five-service career, but I think it's going to cost lives. Wow, let me drop that bomb He was like shocked, shocked. What do you mean? Well, you're about to take the ET before still steaming about it. I'll tell you what, why don't we have two ETs? Spend the money. Oh, budget you straight. So I went to town then. I said, budget you straight. Stood up. I went over to the window. I said, look, there's your car, Range Rover. There's the car next to it. It's a big, big flash bloody Jag or something like that. There's the car next to it. I said, are these all brigade vehicles? Uh, well, uh, uh, what are you saying? Officers shouldn't have a nice car. I said, I'm not saying that at all, but... The, the ethos has changed. When I first joined, the ethos was the stations were at the top. They were the sharp end of the wedge. Everything below that was to support the stations. Officers would come on station and say, right, lads, you had a horrible RTC last week. Did you have everything you needed? Well, actually, we could have done with more cutters. Yeah. I'll see what I can do. Servant you leadership. Know? You know, you're there to remove the barriers for those people. They're not yeah. there to serve you. You're there to serve them. That's the way it goes. People yeah. get this in reverse all the time. Yeah. By the time I left, we've got offices driving around in lovely, lovely, lovely flash cars, but they were saying at the same time, we can't afford to run an ET. And to me, that was completely arse backwards. So why don't the officers come on in the morning and have some pool vehicles? There's 10 officers in headquarters at the moment. One, possibly two. One, possibly two might be called out to an incident. The rest of you, are going to, why don't we have pool vehicles available so that when they turn up in their own car, they're coming in their own bloody mini or whatever they would decide they want to buy for themselves. The same as I have to buy a car for myself. And then have some vehicles available at headquarters, fast response vehicles, so they can turn out if they're required for command of an incident. Anyway, the chief was horrified by this. You know, like, who are you? 
there we go. So well, I'm just telling you what I see. I'm reasonably intelligent. I'm just looking you know, for an efficiency. You know, like you encourage me to. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, and I, I didn't actually say to him. I didn't threaten him, but I said, I wonder if what they think. They knew that you were driving around in 100 grand's worth of vehicle, and you're saying we can't afford a 100 grand's worth of life-saving vehicle. I mean, you know, what, what do you think the general public would make of that? So it's fair to say that my exit interview was quite good, as he expected, you know. <laughs> After after a while, he got literally got blood coming out of his ears, you know, because <laughs> I was giving so much of a so much of a barrage. Yeah, right. I just thought, you know, these blokes. You know, it's a lovely job. Great. If people want to make a career out of it, as in promotion, fantastic power to them. Mm. But we should never lose sight of the fact that we're there to serve the public. One hundred percent. We're not there to feather our own nests. We're not there to build our own little empires. We're not there to, you know, to look good or. The chief officer, for sure, he's got to be a politician. Yeah, mm. he's got to deal with councillors and MPs. And I couldn't do it. I'm too plain, I'm too plain spoken. I'd, I'd upset too many people. I realise <laughs> yeah, it hasn't been is, obvious. <laughs> no, well, yeah, I realise there is a need for diplomats and all the rest of it. But you can employ diplomats. You don't have to yeah. employ firefighters to be diplomats you could employ representatives they started to go that way but mm. in my opinion in the wrong parts of the job i can remember going to a meeting once with a chief i forget which one it was but we had a few chief officers while i was in everything he said he turned around to this little woman nobody knew who she was i reckon she was a spy um <laughs> okay. and it was sort of can i say that and she'd say yes you can say that and he'd, he'd come out of this field and then say can i say that and afterwards i said to somebody who was that who was that you know, but that was the puppeteer. Who was, was that woman? Who was, that was the puppeteer. Who was that woman who could tell, telling him what he could say? And she was the new HR woman, HR woman, not HR. And she was telling the chief what he could say. It was everything he wanted to come out with. He was having to check with the HR woman. And I just thought, you know, it shouldn't be a little woman who's never been near danger deciding the policies of the fire service. You know, like I've never ever been able to understand that. Honestly, I don't want to be offensive to anybody, but like I said earlier, there will be instances in your service where you need every ounce of physical strength you've got. I'll give you one great example I remember. I mean, me and another bloke, I mean, I asked him if I could put his name in the book, and he refused. He didn't want to be named. So, okay, I'm going to respect that confidence. I won't tell you who it was. But I can remember going into a BA job in a terrace house, streets on on hills. Because to get, obviously, to get the house level, some house has got like a basement to, to provide that level platform. We went into this terrace house, very, very hot. I mean, like extremely hot. Worked our way in. Went all the way around the ground floor, couldn't find the fire. You know, just surprised, you know, because obviously you go from one room to the next, you can mm-hmm. feel the increase in temperature. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden the floor gave way because there's a sub-basement, which is but the joists are burnt through, the floor goes away, muggings here, straight through, and I'm standing up to my waist in packing cases, which are well alight. So I'm, I'm basically in a funeral pyre, if you like. I mean, I'm not to sound too dramatic, but it's like literally. We used to wear yellow slickers, the old overtrousers. They're melting. I'm looking down. I can see they're melting, sticking to my legs. So my BA partner grabs hold of the, the door jam with one hand. He's got one hand, one arm around the door jam, leans forward, reaches down to me. I grab his hand with both of my hands, and he literally did like a single arm bloody lift. I, I'm 13, at the time I was about 14 stone, BA set, fire kit, and all the rest of it. Now, the old BA cylinders were metal. They weren't like these composites. They, they were heavy cylinders. So he's with one arm. I mean, you, you're you a strong lad. I've seen you training on, you know, your videos and all the rest of it. Try doing a single arm row. With yeah. like about eighteen stone, it, you know that's that's some physical strength. Yeah. That when adrenaline gets so, kicking in, you surprise yourself, don't you? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I sort of like scrambled up, obviously kicked my feet against the wall to get up, got up. Now my, my slickers and my trousers were both 
completely gone. You know, like virtually burnt through. I got some very minor burns on, I think, the right calf. But I was lucky. A few more seconds, you know, a few more seconds in there. Now, I, I put it to you, and again, this is no disrespect to anybody. I don't question people's courage, commitment, you know, their ability and all the rest of it. But 99% of the job. Yeah. Uh, how much do you weigh? I weigh 19 stone. You weigh 19 stones. I'm by the a time heavy, you got I'm the kick, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's assume it's dry, it's not wet. But it's still about 20 odd stone, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. With all, with all, with all that on, yeah. So, would you want an eight stone person? Now, I'm not going to go down the gender route. No, I'm no, not going to no. go down That's the race. Okay. I don't care. Like the gender, anything like that. Yeah. Are you physically strong yeah. enough to do the job? And not the job at the at the level we've set it at. But, you know, we said earlier yeah. about this culture. Hard times yeah. breed hard people. And back then, there was yeah. a harder caliber of person, not man, woman, anything, just people. Yeah, they were a harder caliber yeah. of people with a more physical resilience. And no, you're right, mate. I, I think it's very unlikely that yeah. the vast majority, and we all we almost make a joke out of it on watch. You know, when we've got yeah. to, when we've got to do a casualty movement of any form, put somebody on the stretcher. If we want to be um, yeah. if we want to be mean about it, we'll put me on there because very few people can move yeah. me. Now I'm 19 stone, but I'm a fit 19 stone. I can lift and move and drag. And there's heavier people than me out there. We all know it. Yeah. I really had these doubts, and I voiced these doubts to a HR woman. And we've got a we've got a girl joining the brigade, and she was a lovely girl. I mean, there's nothing wrong with her character-wise. She was keen. She knew her stuff. The rest of it, she could not pick up her quarter of a lake on ladder to walk. She couldn't pick it up. And there are also so, men, there are some men, obviously, that struggle lifting those sorts of things as well. But oh, yeah, yeah. what can you do about it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You've, you're just not strong enough. Well, I, I said to this. HR woman, I said, look, you know, to be honest, I didn't mention names or, you know, single this this girl out or anything like that. But I said to the woman, look, we're going the wrong way here. We're going the wrong way. The general public, they don't care if there's women on the crew, gays on the crew, Asians on the crew, Western Indians on the crew. All they want when they're in trouble is they want the best people to come out and rescue them. So you're anti-woman. I'm not anti-woman at all. At the time, I think Serena Williams was just winning her first Wimbledon, you know, like, yeah. you know, so if you've got a woman like Serena Williams... I'd have her on my crew any day. I'd have her on my crew, yeah, absolutely. She's, she's stronger than me, so it's not a female thing at all. Yeah, It's not a race thing, it's nothing. I said, yeah. but you're employing people deliberately to tick boxes now rather than by capability. And her answer was, well, she can do the easy job. Well, well, yeah, she what can do the easy job. And that's only around <laughs> so, as long as resources allow. At some point in time, that yeah. person's going to have to get involved. Well, I, I actually told this HR woman, not that she was particularly interested, but I actually said to her, well, <laughs> the other day we had a house fire and one crew was already out of the skip. So they were on the way, but they weren't on arrival. They weren't there with us. So I said, there was, you know, there was five of us. So we've got two BA. This is before you had like rapid deployment procedures and mate, all the rest of it. Now, now there's only four of us, mate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I said to her, there's me. I'll be pulling the hose reel off and all the rest of it because there's nobody else to do it. You've got one bloke who's going to probably ship the standpipe if it's a going, you know, a yeah. goer or whatever. You've got the pump operator. There's me and another bloke. No, I'm going to have to do a 360 in the building, you know, mm-hmm. like blah, blah, blah. Tell me where the easy jobs are. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned the iron cylinders before. I mean, they were heavy. They were very, very taxing to wear. I mean, I, I, mean, I was a fit lad. I mean, I did a lot of training outside the job. Yeah. We used to have a, I think it was 40, I can't remember if it was 40 or 45, I think it was 45, where you didn't have to wear BA anymore. Oh, okay. You know, they, they, they just decided that at that age, it, yeah. it wasn't, so by that age, obviously the blokes, the older blokes, they were either driving, or if they were in the back, they were doing what we used to call hydrant. We used to have three positions in the back of a pump, and that was branch, feed, and hydrant. So yeah. now it's two BAs and an echo, or, you know, whatever they are. Yeah. 
the hydrant man by then he probably knew the patch inside out he knew where all the hydrants were without even having to look at the water book i think these days people probably don't bother about i don't know if they do but they don't seem to bother so much about checking water on route to an incident but they use the mdt so the mobile data terminal on the front tells you where the closest oh, hydrants well. are and we look on there and we go right do you know where the nearest hydrant is and i'll be if he says right, no yeah, yeah. i'll zoom in and i'll go right it's outside number 36 on this street and then he'll glance yeah. it as we approach the incident yeah i've seen it boss yeah right well we we didn't obviously we didn't have a terminal i mean i've any witchcraft um, <laughs> we had water books in the back and i mean like as, as a young lad you know on the way back from an incident you know bring turn around and say where was the hydrant and you couldn't turn around and say i don't know you had to look up where the hydrant was i noticed in later years, obviously, two pumps are pulled up together. That's 800 gallons of water. Obviously, you get a feeding from the, the backup pump. So, the, you know, whichever pump's doing the, you know, got the reels off for us. And our hose reels are going to take a long time to get through 800 gallons. We used to do Dutch rolls. Mm. So Dutch rolls, you know, if you've got a good jet on with a Dutch roll, you've got a factory or a garage or something like that, you're going to burn through your water pretty quick. You ain't got long. So we always four, need Four minutes, we always need maybe. Yeah. Right? Four minutes, maybe, so you'll thrash through. Yeah, 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 that's right. So within that time, you needed a feeding. So there was no time then. I mean, like, you know, three o'clock in the morning, street lights. There was no time then to be looking in the water bowl. So on route to the call, you have to sort out where your water was. And your next one, because if you turned up and there was a car parked over the hydrant, if yep. you haven't got enough blokes to sort of like handball it out of the way, you've got to find out where your next one. And all these things, we these all came under the, the title of the timingship. You know, people expect you to do these things. And this is what I was talking about earlier, mentors. You know, like this wasn't stuff that you were taught on the training school. It was just how the watch did stuff. I don't want this to come over in any way critical of the modern crews, but they've just grown up in a different era. You know what I mean? The, the things that are active, I mean, there might be things that are asked of crews now that are, are more extreme than we had to do. I don't, I don't know. No. Um, Some of the, a lot of what you call firemanship there now falls on the incident commander, to be all, in all honesty with you. A lot of it is becomes more of a leading firefighter role and it's not always yeah. and there are some great members of the crew and even of my crew that will still do this yeah. they're in the back they're looking through the books they're referencing they're, they're, they're yeah. chipping in information chipping in ideas but a lot of it is down yeah. to you now to learn the risk information on route if you haven't been there before um, and then just yeah. disseminate yeah. that as quickly as you can to the rest of the team what happens if that goes down so we do risk I'm inspections on a regular basis anyway so every year each watch will have a yeah. risk risk inspection that they have to go to but we don't walk the streets anymore we don't walk the streets looking at hydrants what about your I mean I'm talking about your gizmo in the front of the pump yeah let's say for argument's sake you're out in the county somewhere so if that gizmo goes down in certain fire appliances and I know in ours we have got an A to Z list of streets and hydrant locations in a folder in the back of the vehicle but I know that's not it's not mandatory a lot of places don't have that yeah you've still got that back up yeah. yeah, regarding, coming back to this thing about diversity and, and fitness levels and all the rest of it, we got fit doing drill. Yeah. I mean, it does make me laugh. I mean, I know you're big into fitness and all the rest of it. I mean, my, I know you don't believe it looking at this 65-year-old bloke here, but I was, I was big into fitness as well. I know, I know. I've heard the, I've heard the stories. I, I, I'll be honest, I used to do too much. I mean, I trained to compete. I competed at, like, international level, and I did too much. And as you know, there's, like, a, a bell curve with fitness where yeah. not enough doesn't really help. But too much to too much help. stimulation, oh, mate. I've had uh, yeah, I've had prolapsed yeah. disc in my back. I've torn ligaments and tendons. You know, trying to trying to yeah. justify it with mental discipline, and actually, it was me pushing myself too far. Yeah, yeah. well, I I reached the point. I mean, I, when I was thirty one, I had pneumonia. It's quite touch and go, really. Um, and that was down to overtraining. I used to run every morning, 
I used to have a, a staff here at the time. We used to go out for like a three-mile run. I used to be in the gym for a couple of hours in the afternoon. I used to do karate at night. Alongside working shifts, poor diet, disrupted sleep and all the rest of it. So eventually too much. So when I talked to people at the time about, I mean, I used to talk to people on the watch who didn't do any exercise. You know, maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that. They'd just turn around and laugh and say, well, you look at my fucking sickness record and look at yours. Yours is worse than mine, which was true because I used to push myself to the point where occasionally I broke, you know. So occasionally I'd, I'd need to have physio for an injured shoulder because I've lifted too much or whatever. The bottom line, we used to have, I don't know if you've still got it now, is we used to drill at fire ground pace, fast pace. So we used to be chucking the kit around. So even the ones who didn't want to do any exercise at all, they were still kept at a level of effectiveness for firefighting yeah. because they used to drill at that pace. Um, the last time I went on station um, years ago, I was, I was talking to a bloke who was in the gym and they got all the, like, the flashy kit and all the rest of it and they were all wearing shorts and, you know, they were also like, trying to compete with each other for the, the time on the rower and all this sort of stuff and they were lifting the kettlebells. And I, I'm a kettlebell coach. I mean, I love, love doing it. But I was talking to the bloke about, okay, you're doing all your aerobic stuff, you're on your recumbent cycle and you're doing all this. And I said, that's, that's lovely, that's great, that's a good aerobic base, blah, blah, blah. But don't you find it's different when you're wearing fire kit? Yeah. What do you mean? Or when you're wearing kit? You know, as soon as you start putting restrictive clothing on where you can't sweat, you can't breathe properly, you've got a yeah. BA set with tight straps. So your lung function is compromised because you can't you can't get that three-chamber breathing. You're dragging kit. You're not lifting stuff in prescribed movement patterns. Yeah. You're dragging uncooperative kit like hose reels around car wheels and stuff yeah. like that. So we didn't do that. You know, we used to go out and drill at a fast pace. And that was our fitness training for firefighting. As you know, I'm not trying to teach you. Okay. No, no, please do. But your training's got to be specific to what you want to achieve. Yep. There is some overlap. Sure, I mean, specific strength is a great adaptation to an imposed demand. That's what I always yeah, say. And yeah. this is where I love the BFC, you know, British Firefighter Challenge training has become such a gift yeah. for me. It's given me an excuse to train in fire kit rather than just looking like a freak all yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. We used to run around in fire kit. Okay, then somebody got a little hurty blister or something like that. So, well, we better not run in fire kit anymore because somebody might get a little woo-woo. You know, you just think, <laughs> say, toughen up. And it's the same with banter. I mean, like when you talk about physical strength and mental strength, I think there is an overlap. Regarding banter, I mean, I mentioned on the internet the other day about banter on stations. It used to be cruel. I mean, Stretch Warden got it right because he said this banter would strip the flesh off your bones. Mm. But nobody complained. I mean, I used to have a great source called Lou Warrow, and he was a really hard man. He was a tanky. He you know, used to be in the tank corps, I think, in the, you know, in, in the military. Yeah. He, he was a tough guy. And when somebody said to him about the piss take, and he just said, well, look, if I can't rely on you to handle piss take, how can I rely on you to deal with some of the situations that we have to face? And I think he had a good point. If you're so mentally fragile that somebody saying hurty words is going to knock you off kilter for the rest of the, rest of the shift, yeah. what are you going to do when you have to pick a dead child up? Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that to be No, 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 you're or, not or being flippant or anything or like that. It's true. You know, if, if people we were always taught that, you know, you don't have to be so like callous or unfeeling. I know some people got that way, but I can't remember when I was, when I was in, I can remember a couple of blokes and it was a real talking point at the time. A couple of blokes went off sick with stress and it was a real talking point that mm. sort of like, well, it's, you know, farming don't do stress. What's that all about? Yeah. 
Um, I'm not being disrespectful to the man. I'm not going to name him, certainly. But, I mean, he, he, he suffered. Mm. He suffered with stress and he went off. And he was off for some considerable time. And we were all surprised because the nature of the job meant you hardened off. You didn't, stress didn't really get you. Um, not At least not publicly. You know, you didn't you didn't publicly admit it. I mean, nobody likes going out to burn children or, or dismembered bodies or anything like that. I mean, you're a bloody freak if you if you enjoy it. But nobody came home and really sort of like, or, or came back to the station and really sort of, you know, you didn't see anybody sitting in the corner sucking the thumb shaking or anything like that. And it never seemed to get to people. I noticed now with the charity, I mean, like years ago, the charity used to be virtually 100% about physical injuries. Yeah. And I don't know what the ratio is now. I think it's maybe 50-50 where it's physical mm-hmm. and Stress-related. I think there's a lot of things um, in the mix in that one because I also think as watch cultures have become uh, not as close and they've become less honest and less uh, there's less banter and there's less encouragement, less wins, less failures that are happening together. The watch cultures become a bit weaker, which I think yeah. is probably a correlating trend with how much more people are, de- are struggling to deal with some of the stresses of the job. And there are some tremendous stresses of the job, but uh, a rich watch culture often allowed a very much needed pressure release valve on that stress yeah which i don't think um we've found whilst we've thrown that we've sort of thrown the baby out of the bathwater because we've thrown out some of the watch culture because it did come at times with with a little bit of bullying um which certainly needed addressing but i think we've done a bit too much of a recalibration sometimes and as a result people find it hard to speak about things that would have come out naturally in the banter of a strong watch culture and they don't they're not finding a release for it anymore I, I agree 100% what you're saying. I mean, I, I have witnessed bullying. Um, I've been on the wrong end of it. You know, not too proud to admit it. When I joined, there was a, a bloke on uh, B-section and his favourite trick was to smack you right in the middle of your spine as hard as he possibly could. Then go, you're right. I know you can edit that out, so I don't yeah. want to say Bang! And he, I was about eight and a half stone. He was about 15 stone. So it really, really come keen. I sorted it out because he did it to me once and I turned around and kneed him straight in the bollocks. Yeah. You know, I just thought, have some of that. You no, know, no, if yeah. you want to you want to do violence, I can do that. I quite enjoy it. And he was so, oh, you know, can't you take a joke? So, well, if you want to get physical, I can do that. I can do that every day of the week. You know, let's go for it. Yeah. Come on, sort it. Um, not everybody can do that. Not everybody's got the tools to do it. Not everybody's got the mindset to do it. I and they shouldn't. They shouldn't have to do it as well. In in those no, certain, no. you know, I'm all for I'm all for a bit of thickening people's skin and all that sort of stuff. But yeah. stuff like that is just is just blatant, you know. And again, okay, he came no. up in a different culture, and maybe that was the behaviour in his household. But you know, you can really hurt people when you're doing that sort of stupidity. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, there was one lad on the watch I was I was with. I mean, I, I mean, I was about ten or so, but this lad was smaller than me. And he, he suffered terribly with this bloke hitting him. So, I mean, I think I did him a favour as well. Yeah. But I, I turned around to the bloke and obviously give him some back. And he didn't, he, he, I don't remember him doing it again after yeah. that. Now, that sort of thing is totally wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. What I'm talking about is when you go out to an incident, I mean, I've picked heads up, you know, I've dealt with, you know, bodies with massive burns and you know like you try and pick them up and you know it's all bloody waxy and greasy yeah. and, you know you know i've seen all the, the horrible stuff well. and I'm not, I'm not, stinks yeah you know, absolutely i mean a lot of people talk about sights you can't unsee but they don't talk about sounds you can't unhear and smells you can't unsmell you know what i mean like you know the smell of burnt bloody bacon basically the, you know, yeah. the smell of burnt flesh uh, we had a spater where there was quite a lot of um 
Asian women satisfied themselves. You know, there might have been other reasons, but I don't want to really go down that route. As far as the police were concerned, you know, it'd been a tragic accident. But you go out to women with 90 percent burns, I mean, you know the survivability. It, it might be a lot better now, but at the time we used to rule, you know, 100 minus your age. So if a 70-year-old woman, if she's got more than 30% burns, forget it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, if you've got a 20-year-old woman who's got 70% burns, she's got a chance. But yeah. we used to go out for quite a few of these. And yeah, it's very unpleasant. You come back, you can't get the smell out of your nostrils and everybody's a bit sort of like, like this. And especially if you had to wait and watch them die. I mean, we did that on a couple of occasions when the ambulance crew turned out. They just thought, well, why put her through all the trauma of even mm. load her on the ambulance? You know, like, she's going to go. The airway's closing up. All the flames have gone down her, her throat. You can see that, you know, the throat's closing. She's going to go. So, I mean, that's not pleasant. For any normal person yeah. watching somebody dying, that sort of pain is not, not right. Standard procedure, cooling water. So, obviously, hose reel off the appliance. Very light trickle of water. Just to, if you can, just try and give them some degree yeah. of comfort. Uh, and then basically watch them go. Not nice. You come back to the station, human beings, we've all got grandmas about the same age or whatever. But at some point, at some trigger point, somebody cracks a joke. You've got to break that black ice. And then all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden the spell's broken, you know. Yeah. And then you're back into it and everybody's taking the piss. And You've got to you carry on. To do it. So you need to roll. The pumps yeah. need to go out the next day. Yeah, I mean, a, a big term now in fitness mental and physical, is resilience. Resilience is the ability to bounce back from trauma, hardship, whatever. I, I've been on station and wore three BA sets in one night, you know, three house fires in one night. So if the first one's fatal and you're sitting there because you're a bit upset and you need a safe space and all the rest of it, and again, I'm using these terms in a, in a derogatory sort of way, but you couldn't do that, you know, because the next time the bells go down, you've got to go and you've got to perform. And the next time it might be somebody who, can't, who is savable. So you've got, to be on your, you've got to be on your A game. You can't be feeling sorry for yourself. So we always found the easiest way to get people back to where they should be is one, a cup of tea, because that's always a winner on a fire station. Two, somebody would get a pan out, you know, and I was lucky to work with some really good bloody... I was, I was always a crap bloody chef, but I mean, like, sooner or later, somebody's rustled something up. You've got to, mate. Even a watch marches on its stomach, 100%. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But by the time you've, you know, you've cleaned the kit, got the machine back on the run, cleaned yourself, swap your fire kit over if this, this kit stinks or whatever, got yourself upstairs, got a brew down your neck, got some food down you. Talk through the job. This went well. Where I mean, the officers I had, the station officers I had, I mean, I don't know what the equivalent time from now, but we used to have station officers in charge of a watch. They were very good. They were like a fire figure in a way. Yeah. Um, they'd sort of like, they'd keep an eye out. They'd see if somebody was a bit quiet, not really, you know, getting involved in the conversation or whatever. They'd perhaps have a quiet word with you afterwards. You okay? You know, all this sort of stuff. But that's how they did it. And I think a lot of that's been lost now. Well, we had a rider station officer, so like it's like the watch manager. At the time, there was 22 blokes on a watch. Mm. You know, it's a big watch. I mean, that's half your fuck now, isn't it? But <laughs> there's 20, 22 blokes on a watch. What is there, nine now? Again, going back going back to the 70s, we had two pumps, HP and TL cross-manned, ET and FST usually cross-manned. So you'd have at least 13 on. Usually 15 was the minimum, but by permission from the senior officer, it could go down to, to 13, I believe. But normally we rode with 15. So there are 22 on a watch, and seven could be off for leave, yeah. training or whatever. Coming back to the, the stress thing, I mean, I, I did a lot of research. I mean, I'm not well qualified, but I'm well read about stress, 
you know, PTSD. The other side to it is what's called post-traumatic growth. Love it. That's where um, I live. <laughs> yeah. Some people, they go out to a traumatic event, it plays on their mind, they have nightmares, all the rest of it. Other people learn from it, they grow from it. You know, they, it makes them mentally tougher. The and you've got to want to find the benefit in it, you know, because you're all going to have to go yeah. through those things as operational personnel. But that, yeah. that's ultimately, you've got to ask yourself, you know, am, am I going to, am I just going through this or am I going to grow through it? You know, what can I take away from this? Yeah. How can this make me more, more mentally tough, more resilient? How, what, what wins can I take from it? Yeah. But my point really is that I had to do all this research research in my own time it should be part of the culture it should be part of you know not just the physical training i don't know what the physical training is like on on your station now but as well as doing physical station training we used to do drill every day like i mentioned earlier didn't matter what the weather was and the rest of it nights as well we used to do drill from half six till half seven then we used to have like technical lectures i don't know what the procedure is now the technical lectures, though, would be like, okay, we've got a new bit of kit, let's get up in the quiet room, let's take it to bits, put it together, this is how you used to do We never had any training at all on dealing with trauma. It was just the it was the elephant in the room. Nobody ever told us how to deal with trauma. What we did, because of the watch culture, I mean, we used to have a rec room without a bar. I mean, sometimes it was abused and eventually it was closed. But we used to have a big gas fire. And we used to have a big long table in the rec room and everybody used to sit around swapping stories and yeah. all the rest of it they're talking about and that's how you you know men, you mentally yeah, you, know, it, yeah. you grew you, you understood the job the only time I remember anybody bloke I used to work with you know he's, he mentioned the same thing probably at a, a different time I can remember one particularly really really shitty horrible job um, a DO poked his head around the the door of the quiet room and said right lads does anybody need any counselling now he's going to put their hand up and say me yeah. me no Nobody's going to, but it shouldn't be down to individuals going and seeking help. It should be part of the training culture. Now the science is there. I mean, at the time, I mean, I mentioned my father a while ago. My father was ex-military, served in Korea, Royal Marines. He was on small boat teams, which I suppose, you know, similar to what the SBS does now. You know, they used to canoe in inlets, blow up bridges to stop the advancing North Korean army and all the rest of it. Small, Small boat squads. He saw some horrible things, you know, he killed people, he, you know, he quite matter-of-fact about removing sentries and God knows what. And he also saw a lot of cruelty with the civilian population. And he had PTSD, there's no doubt about it, but at the time, nobody diagnosed it. You know, he was a Royal Marine, he was a rough, tough, the area-ass Royal Marine. So nobody mentioned trauma and the effect on the brain and all the rest of it. So as a child, I lived with that, you know, because my father had really, really unpredictable moods and all the rest of it. You know, sometimes he was really helpful, really great. Other times he'd fly off the handle and classic PTSD symptoms, you know. Some things would trigger him for no reason at all. Now, I can remember as a child, you know, I had a sister, obviously my mother. We we suffered that. Now, no firefighter's family should have to suffer. No. Say they really shouldn't. I mean, this and is they something. Are doing I mean, like they are doing it as well. They yeah, are suffering that. I'm, I'm not in a position to influence that one way or the other. But now the science is out there. Now everybody understands PTSD and how it goes. The science That's is there, really mate, and we've we've started to give it lip service. I would say, you know, we've done courses. I'm a trim practitioner, so trauma instant right. management. I do that in the service, right. but it's very much yeah. a guidance and referral role. You know, what I mean, we signpost people yeah. to other services, and we've we've just started sprouting the roots of intention. And we need to take more action on it. I know there's an appetite for it. Um, that appetite needs to be more than just an appetite. We need to be taking actions. 
towards it now. I'm super yeah. conscious of, of time, Gaz, is the only thought. I wanted to close quickly. Uh, if I could force yeah. you into three non-negotiable behaviors, characteristics that people in and around you uh, must subscribe to, you think, whilst your time in the fire service, what are those three characteristics that you would demand people adopt and be part of in order to exist in this idea of the fire service right. that we described? A willingness to prepare. Roger that. A willingness to prepare. You get the odd person. I've been in 25 years. I don't need to pitch a lake on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I used to say to him, I mean, again, another martial arts expression, you're only as good as your last fight. You're only as good as your last fight. You're only as good as the last time you pitched a lake on. If you've not pitched a lake on for 12 months, don't expect to do it efficiently at 3 yeah. o'clock in the morning. So a willingness to prepare. 100%. A willingness to step up. Yeah. Now, I've been, I've been to fires, I'm sure you have. I've been to fires where there's a horrible job to be done. Horrible. And you shouldn't have to look at the first bloke who sort of like looks away, look at the next one who looks away, look at the next one who conveniently finds something and he's putting back on the appliance, look at the next one until eventually you find somebody who is prepared to pick up that burnt body, for argument's sake. Everybody on the crew, to me, should be prepared to step up. Yeah. So if the ladder's pitched and they're looking for somebody to go up it, they shouldn't see a lot of faces that sort of like, no, I don't want to do that. Everybody ought to be capable. Whoever stood closest to the foot of the ladder, start climbing it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, you know, a willingness to step up. Um, you do face danger. I'm not, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, gravity is ever present. Going aloft, you know, gravity and concrete's not a good mix. Going into fires, you know, flash over backdraft, no collapsing floors. As I mentioned earlier, you do face danger. You don't want anybody who's in the job, in my opinion, under false pretenses. If they've not got the bollocks, to actually go in and do dangerous stuff, you've got to question while they're there. I forget what his name is, Charles, I think it's Charles Shorts, the bloke who did peanuts. I mean, he, he put down something. Recruit, character, train, skill. Yes. So, to train that, character that is, is, is almost impossible, isn't it? I'd rather have somebody with a desire yeah. to improve and develop than somebody yeah. that wanders Recruit. in with a skill set and a, yeah. and a diploma and whatever, but has not got that growth mindset. Yeah. Growth mindset, I mean, that's brilliant. You know, you've got, you've got to believe that if you train hard enough, you can raise your level, raise your game. And 100%. it's the same in the gym, the dojo, and certainly on the drill yard. You've got to believe that. So a willingness to prepare, a willingness to step up. And the other thing as well, I, I think I'll come back to this, is to have a fucking sense of humour. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. You really have. Don't take yourself too seriously. You, no, you've got to be able to laugh at the bizarre because otherwise you really would go nuts. And I, yeah. when I say nuts, I mean that. You can't use the term nuts now because it's, it seems very disrespectful to people with a genuine problem. But you've got to have a sense of humour. And I think the sense of humour will carry you through tough times. It'll make your bonds closer with your watchmates. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to be a stand-up comic, but yeah. you've got to be able to sort of like look at situations and basically not take yourself too seriously. Yeah. If you... You're too far up your own arse, you know, like people won't really... I think the sense of humour and that banter is like, uh, I've said it before, that pressure release valve. You've got to be able to have a laugh. Don't take yourself too seriously. Otherwise, uh, you'll find yourself in a very, very serious place if you take yourself too seriously for too long. And uh, that never ends well for anybody. No, that's right. So that would be my three. If I was going to design a fireman from scratch, firefighter, whichever term you want to use. I always use the term fireman because I was taken on a generation. I know it it changed later, but... If I was going to design somebody from scratch, the first thing I'd do, right, are they enthusiastic? Are they prepared to train? Mm. Are they prepared to learn and master their craft? And it is a craft. You know, talk, people talk about it now as if it's just a job. It's not. It's a craft. Just like being a, a good engineer, you've got to pay attention to detail. A good carpenter, you've got to pay attention to 
want to be a good fireman, you've got to pay it. You've got to learn your craft. So the willingness to prepare and the willingness to step up. Now, as you said, character, that can't be, can't, you can't beat character into somebody, but you should find out before you go down the route of putting them on a 13-week training school or the continuation training or the rest of it. I think with some people, I think the job was almost embarrassed to turn around and say, you know what, we've made a mistake here. We've got to let them go. Yeah. They took people on. Certainly, I, I can remember, I'm not going to name names, but I can remember them taking people on, and it just didn't work. They were either weren't bright enough, they weren't enthusiastic enough, yeah. but they ticked to box. You, you know what I'm saying? They ticked to box. And the brigade, although these people, some of them were disruptive, some of them just, they, they just couldn't fit into watch culture. Mm. The brigade was sort of too embarrassed to say, you know what, we tried, we gave you the opportunity, you didn't take it. Let's go and work somewhere else, you know. Yeah. So they kept people on that really shouldn't have done. So the willingness to step up, courage. Courage is the ability to control fear. I, I learned courage quite early on because I'll be honest with you, I can hate heights. I always did. I spent 31 years controlling that fear. Yeah. I volunteered for a high reach rescue squad. I think it's all under tech rescue now. We trained, we used to go up bloody cranes and God knows what. And I hated it, but I wanted to do it because I wanted to practice, keep practicing that controlling fear. Yeah. And if you've got people who sort of like, I'm afraid of something, I'm not going to do it. You've got to, you've got to question whether in a rescue service, perhaps they should have done a different job. That's okay. Because yeah. there will be times where you've got to, everybody else is going that way, and you know, your crew manager turns around to you and says, "Right, you two, you two you're going, going that way." Yeah. You know, if you've got somebody who's looking for a toilet at the time, or Shaking like a leaf, that's that's just not good. And like I say, last thing, I know I'm rabbiting a bit, but last thing, yes, yeah, have a sense of humour. Yeah. Um, take the, the job seriously. Once you roll out the doors, professional, mm. spot on, back on station, have a oh. laugh. If one thing the rescue t- services should teach us is that life is not promised. You know, it, it, it can end violently mm. very soon. I mean, families go out for a day trip, they hit a truck, they're all gone. It can... It can so why people want to spend their life on station being visible just surprises me, you know. So, yeah, just have a laugh. Not, not be cruel to each other. You know, that, that those days are gone. But enjoy each other's company and support each other, you know. Well, you I know, think anybody that's uh, that's struggling with a sense of humour will certainly have been given it from uh, from our conversation today and with all of your contributions, mate. I love your, I love your oh, honesty sorry. and I really thank you for, for giving that injection of reality that I think has been uh, sorely missed. I'm the serial optimist, so my hope is that with the existence of things like the podcast and with the honesty of guests such as yourself, we can hopefully bring a little bit of that back and pour some more into the cocktail. I will um, put everything in the notes for us, mate, and a reminder for everybody that your book still still can get it available. Donations to the Firefighters Charity, get in contact with yourself. All of your contact details will be down there as well. And uh, I really appreciate your time today, brother. You're very welcome. All Thank right. you so much, Good to speak to you. Take care, mate. And there you have it, folks. That was my fantastic, colourful conversation with the fantastic Gary Chamberlain. As I said right at the beginning of the episode, Gary is a published author and details of his books and also the Firefighters Charity, which were mentioned in there. Gary's always doing little stuff for charity. So take a look at the links below. You'll be able to click through there. You'll have Gary's email address. You'll be able to get hold of his book, 1000 Degrees at the Ceiling, Life on the Thin Red Line. Gary's only sending this to people which are willing to give a donation to the Firefighters Charity who help operational firefighters past and present and their families all over the world, but more specifically in the UK. 
You'll also find links to some of the Firefighter podcast platforms. Be sure to check in there where you'll find a whole bunch of mini sound bites to give you a little taster, a little nugget of all of our episodes that are out there at the minute. We are really cranking the dial, rapidly approaching 80 episodes, so plenty of incredible guests have been on the podcast, and you can take a sample from all of those on our Instagram page, on our Facebook page, and also on our YouTube page. I think it's important to mention that Gary was in the fire service for a very, very long time, but he has left the fire service a very, very long time ago as well. Gary was on here today representing himself, his own thoughts, his own feelings, his own reflections, his own memories, the good, the bad, and the ugly from his time in the fire service in the UK. But his thoughts, opinions, values are those of him, and of course, many of which do not reflect the values, opinions, and thoughts of fire services currently operating out there. I hope is they've still got a few of them, and I can say as an operational firefighter in the UK that many of the good things Gary speaks of are still in existence, are still empowering people, are still enjoying it. People aren't taking themselves too seriously. We've got a tremendously resourceful, diverse, and passionate fire service all over the UK. There's always a few bad apples, and I'm not sure we'll ever fix that. But my sincere hope, again, as that serial optimist, is that we can simply overwhelm them with our positivity. And I really feel privileged to act as a funnel to allow people to share their own personal true feelings, true opinions, unfiltered from their time in the emergency services. This episode, alongside Gary's books, is a little bit like a times capsule, which will hopefully allow us to reflect back on that time in the fire service and hopefully think that we've come a long way. Hopefully we've took some of the good things with us and hopefully we've changed to better reflect the ideals, the priorities, the values, the morals, the culture of the communities that we serve today because the cultures have changed a lot as well. So with all that in mind, all that's left to say is thank you to you, the listener. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it. And let's not go too long before we speak again. Who knows who's coming up next? Well, I do. And I'll tell you what, there are some absolutely fantastic guests coming on. So I'll leave you as the optimist and say I can't wait to see you again real soon, right here on the Firefighters Podcast. Oh, my God.